buck a buck a buck a buck a buck a You know the deal. This is me, though. Beast by Supremo for all of my people, Negroes and Latinos, and even the Gringos. Yo, check it, one for Charlie Hustle, two for Steady Rock, three for the fourth coming live, future shock. It's five dimensions, six senses, seven firmaments of heaven and hell, eight million stories to tell, nine planets faithfully keep an orbit with the probable tenth. The universe expands length, the body of my text possess extra strength, power lift the powerless up out of this towering inferno. My ink so hot it burned through the journal, I'm black at midnight on Broadway and Myrtle. Hip-hop past all your tall social hurdles like the nationwide pro. This prison industry complex Working class poor Better keep your alarm set Streets too loud To ever hear freedom ring Say you're back in with your sleep It's dangerous to dream But your chain cats Get they chip You dead now Killing fields Need blood to graze The cash cow It's a numbers game But shit don't add up somehow Like I got 16 to 32 bars To rock it But only 15% of profits Ever seen my pockets Like 69 billion In the last 20 years Spent on national defense But folks still live in fear Like nearly half of America's largest cities Is one quarter the black, that's why they gave Ricky Ross all the crap. 16 ounces to a pound, 20 more to a key. A five minute sentence hearing and you no longer free. 40% of Americans own a cell phone so they can hear everything that you say when you ain't home. I guess Michael Jackson was right. You are not alone. Rock your hard hat black as you in the terror dome. Full of hard niggas, large niggas, dice tumblers. Young teens in prison greens facing life numbers. Crack mothers, crack babies, and AIDS patients. Young bloods can't spell, but they can rock you at PlayStation. Snoo Mavis with my mother. Ass. You wanna know how to rhyme? You better learn how to add. It's mathematics. <laughs> Mighty most desperate. It's, it's simple mathematics. Check it out. I'm all around science. What are we talking about here? Mighty most desperate. It's simple mathematics. Check it out. I'm all around science. What are we talking about here? Two sides to every story, three strikes, and you bitten for life. Mandatory. Four MCs murdered in the last four years. I ain't trying to be the fifth when the millennium is here. Yo, it's six million ways to die. From the seven deadly thrills, eight year olds getting found with nine mills. It's 10 p.m. where your C's at. What's the deal? They on the hill pumping krills to keep their bellies filled. Lighting the ass with heavy steel. Sights on the pretty shit in life. Young soldiers trying to earn their next strike. When the average minimum wage is 515, you best believe you gotta find a new grind to get cream. The white Unemployment rate is nearly more than triple for black. So frontliners got their gun in your back. Bubble and crack. Jewel theft and robbery to combat poverty and end up in the global jail economy. Stiffer stipulations attached to each sentence. Budget cutbacks but increased police presence. And even if you get out of prison, still living, join the other five million under state supervision. This is business. No faces, just lines and statistics. From your phone, your zip code, the SSI digits. The system break man channel women in the figures. Two columns for who is and who ain't. Niggas, numbers is hard and real and they never have feelings But you push too hard when and even numbers got limits Why the one short rip the camel back is the seat I might accept it Mighty most definitely Mighty most definitely I guess where I'm from maybe most weeks if not days Where are you really from? 
was like, oh, I thought I was from here. But now you're making me wonder if I really am from here. You're asking me what city I grew up in, like what country I feel most at home in, where I was born. I wish I could just say I'm from one place. I can't get away from the fact that I'm black, so people see that and immediately I'm different. Depending on who I'm talking to, would depend on what answer they get. Sometimes people ask me where you're from and I'll say anything from like London to like my mom's vagina. People think I'm either a millionaire, a prince or a terrorist. I'm none of those. It's kind of like anything you tell them they're not going to be happy with because they're looking for that answer that's in their head, which is you ain't from here. I was at a family holiday with my boyfriend's parents and they had some old family friends that came over for dinner and after a little while they were like, so what part of India do you originate from? Because from the way you dress, I'm thinking maybe you're from the northern desert. And I was thinking, well, I was brought up in Bradford. I'm wearing like a charity shop vintage dress. Where are you getting these like signifiers from? Punjabi British Asian. British Punjabi? I don't know, really. My dad is from Iran, my mum is from England. I was born in New York, came here when I was six years old. I'm not fully British, nor do I want to be, because I have a different heritage. So it's really good to be able to balance all these two sides and really create what you can from it. My mum told me she's part Jewish the other day, so it's constantly changing. <laughs> More recently, where are you really from? I realise people are just curious. I think most people ask it because Everyone's a bit socially awkward, and if they feel like there's an in to make some small talk, someone just grabs for that. It's sometimes a nice thing because they want to learn about you, they want to learn about your background. Where your blood comes from is such a small portion of like what makes you who you are. When I look at people, whether they're black, white, Asian, whatever, I see certain things in their makeup that look like me, you know? And then I wonder, like, we're not all really different. But speaking of two people, Sam, man, who had differences of opinions, you were telling me about Freeway Ricky Ross, the real Freeway Ricky Ross. He sat down and he did an interview and he went in on Rick Ross, man. Crazy. Yeah, he was on Fox Soul. They've been getting a lot of people lately. That um, And obviously Freeway Rick Ross is one of the biggest drug dealers of all time. Did his time, came out became an advocate, became an author, mm-hmm. also became a person, one would say, of identity theft because victim, yeah. um, Freeway Rick Ross would not be known as big as he is without Ricky Rose, Rick Ross. Now, mm-hmm. if you don't know anything about Freeway Rick Ross and you were first introduced to the name in hip-hop, one would think that that was Rick Ross's name and not Freeway Rick Ross's name. Now, they've been through court. They've been through legal battles and things like that. They spoke on it before, both of them. Mm-hmm. Freeway recently sat down and talked about it, brought up some interesting dialogue. Oh, God, and I wanted to talk about it. So let's hear him first and get to it. feel about having and other people calling you, calling themselves the same name as yours? Uh, ooh, it's, it's, that's like a double-headed sword, right? You, you kind of you feel flattered, mm-hmm. you know, that somebody thought enough of you to, mm-hmm. uh, to name themselves after you. And then um, I was in prison when I first heard, so it was kind of disrespectful because I said, well, you know what, he could have reached out and asked me, was it okay to do that? And um, by that not happening, I, I, I'm i good with it, though. You, you know? all at it? Uh, yeah, <laughs> we all at it. We all at it. Uh, In a good way? Yeah, it was just a friendly conversation. Okay. You know, I was like, hey, you need to come to the prison, you know, so we could really talk because I was on the telephones, you know, and the phones are recorded. Yay. So I didn't want everybody to know what we was talking about, especially not the uh, prison officials. Right. And um, we had made arrangements. He was supposed to come down to the prison and visit me. 
so that we could talk business. Um, he called? He never came. He changed his number. Oh, oh wow. <laughs> I don't know what happened, but, uh, you know, it, it didn't go the way I thought it should have went. Yeah. Okay. That's very different. So it's squash now. So it's all good. Not squash, but, okay. you know, it's not important. Okay. Right. You know, it's not something that I think about. Um, I don't talk about it unless somebody brings it up. Okay. Um, I got so many other things going on right now, you know, so many other um, things of, of importance at, at this particular time that uh, who took my name is, you know, it's four guys that uses my name. Oh, really? Yeah, it's been four rappers to uh, adopt my, my name in some form. Four who rappers? Who was that? Well, you know, we got Freeway from Philly, uh -huh. which is my man. Okay. You know? okay. And then we got Freeway Rich from uh, Kansas City. All right. Uh, who, in his own rights, have uh, have gained some stardom. And we got the Freeway Boys from uh, Cincinnati. Okay. Who also okay. use it. But there's only the one that has the Rick Ross. Well, well uh, Rick Ross used my whole name, you know, and... and um, he probably gained the most stardom out, out of everybody, mm -hmm. even though Freeway had gotten pretty big when he was with Jay-Z. You know, I think he had sold like uh, half a million copies. He went gold. Uh, but, you know, with him, it's a different it's a different element to it. You know, he wrote me and was like, hey, man, I love you. You know, that's yeah. why I, I chose your name. And then the other guy, he goes around and tells people he never heard of me. Right, right. When you hear those type of stories, it just kind of make you feel like, you know, what's with this guy? Mm. You know, why can't this guy just come out and yeah, say, be honest. you know, what I am and what I do? And, and then the, the way he raps, too, you know, he raps about selling drugs. Right. And he never sold drugs. Mm. You know, he, he was a correctional officer, uh, had a credit card in high school. Ah, so ironic. You know, comes from one of those great backgrounds. <laughs> went to college and played like he couldn't read and write. You know, wow. I'm, I'm like, why do you make mockery of stuff that normal people go i'll stop it right there man great interview great dialogue the woman was beautiful by the way on the donnie show goodness mm -hmm. gracious but listen man he said some interesting things um he talked on freeway which i honestly didn't even know that they correlated it was it, was, it wasn't until freeway rick ross came out that it was kind of like oh okay you took homeboy stuff before i go in man what do you think about that well um back you know, a few years back, 2014, he actually tried to sue Rick Ross. He lost that case for $10 million, you know, for um, stealing this persona and whatnot. They immensely, you know, threw it out. But, um, yeah, I have to agree with Freeway, Ricky Ross, man. You just got to look at it like, you know, if you built this this name for yourself, regardless of what you did, somebody just takes your whole, you know, thing and profits millions of dollars off that, obviously you're going to want some type of compensation for it. And then it's like, when I heard, I never knew this part, but it blew my mind when he said that, he reached out to Rick Ross. Rick Ross supposed to come meet with him, and he changed his number. It's almost like, F you. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And then, you know, um, him not owning up to it. You know, then I remember, you know, because we used to do the throwback game heavy. I'm um, having a video up where Rick Ross was talking about. Um, they asked him, was he correctional officer? And he lied about it, mm -hmm. and he came clean. So definitely some credibility issues with Rick Ross back then. You know what I mean? I'm not saying that it affects anything that he has going on right now. Um, he says that he really sold drugs. Free Ricky Ross said he never sold drugs. I don't know, but definitely from what I'm hearing and some of the facts that I know, I always kind of thought that, but I kind of just, you know, it was so long ago, you just move forward and just, we know a lot of it's entertainment anyway, but you know, beats and stuff is good and whatnot. But um, yeah, Rick, Freeway Ricky Ross is 100% um, balls accurate, as they say with this one. I agree. You know, I heard, I, I listened to a lot of his dialogue in regards to this um, this particular topic in, in Rick Ross taking his name. 
And I knew about the conversation of him calling him and reaching out and him changing the number. I heard that before. But what I didn't know is that it was while he was in prison that he found out and took offense to it because you got to think in a situation, you sit in a prison for God knows how long. Then all of a sudden this dude takes your name, doesn't say anything to you, begins taking money that you could possibly be using toward books, toward commissary, toward your family, whatever. And he can't even offer a conversation after promising you he would. Then he changes it up on yeah, some shady stuff. That's shady. Very shady. Um, and then it kind of reminded me, oh, God, of checking in. We were talking about checking in a couple of days ago. And the respect factor, the whole thing. Now, Freeway, he said Freeway took my name, but it was out of homage. He wrote me a letter saying how much he admired me and how much he uh, respected me. And this is why he took it. He took it out of homage. A brother sitting behind bars could respect something like that, seeing that. And then kind of gaining some fame and throwing yeah, homage to it. Essentially, yeah. Checked it. Drink water on an empty stomach immediately after waking up. It's no secret that staying hydrated is important for our survival. The time of day and the way people stay hydrated will vary. Some people prefer to drink coffee in the morning or soda at lunch, but one thing is certain, nothing beats a refreshing glass of plain cold water. You can drink water at any time during the day and it will be beneficial for you. But consuming a large glass as soon as you wake up in the morning will provide you with unique rewards. According to Clemson University, about 75% of our body weight is made up of water. Depending on where you are or where you live, Water is inexpensive or even free. It is low in sodium and is caffeine-free, making it the perfect source for meeting your hydration needs. Before we begin this video, don't forget to subscribe to our channel for more daily tips like this and turn on notifications so you never miss our new videos. Now, here are the top reasons why you should be having a glass of water on an empty stomach immediately after you wake up. Convenience. So most people drink water with their meals, which has its positives, but also its negatives as well. According to Don Colbert, MD, and author of Eat This and Live, drinking water during a meal can dilute digestive juices and even upset your stomach. He adds that drinking it in the morning, immediately after you wake up, is the ideal time. Your stomach is completely empty, so a glass of water won't hinder your digestion. And if you have a bottle of water or a glass by your bed, all you need to do is reach for it. Reduce stomach acidity. If you are one of many people who experience heartburn, it's because you have high levels of acid in your stomach. According to the Family Medicine Handbook, which is brought to you by the Northern Ontario School of Medicine, during the night when you are sleeping, your stomach is the primary source of hydrochloric acid in your body. It produces it all night long. Usually, food will dilute the acid, but because your stomach is empty in the morning, heartburn is more likely to occur in the morning hours. But if you have water immediately after you wake up, it can reduce the level of acidity in your stomach. It helps to relieve bowel movements. According to the Medical Daily, Drinking a warm glass of water as soon as you wake up in the morning on an empty stomach can help relieve your bowel movements and also help with constipation. Usually, when we are having trouble relieving our bowel movements, it's because there's a lack of water in our bodies. In the morning, when there's little to no water in our system, consuming water will help to quickly break down any food that has not been digested just yet. 
help control calories. According to Penn State researcher Barbara Rolls, PhD, author of the Volumetrics Weight Control Plan, if you're looking to lose weight or try and control the number of calories you consume, water is a great source to help with that. Rolls adds that when you consume water with a meal, the meal tends to feel larger than it may actually be. This is because the food is digested more slowly, so you feel fuller. It helps keep the skin looking fresh. According to the Atlanta dermatologist, Kenneth Elner, everyone's skin contains a lot of water, which acts as a protective barrier to prevent fluid loss. He adds that dehydration can make the skin look more dry and wrinkly, which can be prevented or improved with proper hydration. It prevents hangovers. If you know that your night is going to include a lot of alcohol consumption, it might be a good idea to mix in some water, especially when the night is coming to an end. This can help prevent a hangover. Healthline explains that alcohol is a diuretic, which means that you lose more water when you consume, which is why you experience dry mouth, headaches, and thirst when you wake up the following morning, AKA a hangover. It energizes the muscles. According to WebMD, cells that do not maintain a proper balance of fluids and electrolytes will shrivel up, which can cause severe muscle fatigue. To prevent that, the American College of Sports Medicine recommends that people drink around 17 ounces of water two hours before exercising. They also recommend that people begin to drink fluids early and often during their workout. It will help replace the fluids that you're sweating out. Other health benefits of water. According to WebMD, one of the health benefits of drinking water is to help maintain the balance of bodily fluids. Because over half of our body consists of water, it's essential to keep these bodily fluids balanced because they help with digestion, circulation, absorption, transportation of nutrients, and the creation of saliva. WebMD also adds that when the body is low on fluids, the brain will trigger the body's thirst mechanism. It's important not to ignore this sign because your body will not function properly without sufficient fluids. Enjoy this video. What's up, family? There's a viral video out of a young black soldier addressing people making light of the United States and Iran's imminent war. Well, can't just say it's the United States against Iran because the United States is going to form a coalition of co-signers. That way, when it goes in on Iran, it won't look like the bully it is. So the guy in the video expressed his contempt with how people are just joking and just just joking it up about this soon-to-be bloodbath. He said that, hey, man, I, I understand that we live, you know, and if we got a, a, this is a goofy generation. I get it. But, you know, it's people out here for real. You know, I'm out here for real. You know, my life is on the line. It's other people out here who have their lives on the line. This thing is real. 
You know, he's like, hey, man, I get it. You know, I like to laugh. I like, I know people like to laugh, but this is real. Now, I know there are you guys out there right now, you're typing away and you're saying, hey, man, you know, that's what you signed up for. You know, no black man should be fighting the white man's war and killing brown people and all of this stuff. And I get it. I'm with you. I'm with you. The fact is, however, this guy is young and he may not have gotten the lesson that you got about the U.S. military. He may not know what you know. So when he went in, he wasn't armed with the information. He wasn't armed with the information that he probably don't even know. He's probably not even aware that you had black soldiers who came from World War I, who fought the Civil War, who came from World War I, who came from World War II, and came right back to America and not only got called the N-word, but were lynched. He probably don't even know that history. Because a lot of these guys, when they join the service, they just go in to try to pay bills. I mean, most of the people that are in the service uh, come from poor backgrounds. And so joining the military is like the quickest way to adjust to adulthood and, you know, get your bills paid, get a roof over your head, get some food in your belly, have a little money to spend and save. Also, you have people that join the military so that the government can pay for their education. So they join it for these reasons, not expecting to ever have to actually be deployed and go to war. Call recording off. So this call is being recorded. I get it. You know, you signed up for it. I get it. But I think we have to, you know, take a look at, you know, why these youngsters sign up to get in in the first place. And not everybody that are in the military are youngsters. What happens a lot, a lot of times, this is what I saw happen with my cousin who is in the Navy. He's Navy Reserve now. But when he first went in, he told me he was going in and he was going to do a four-year turnaround. What happened is that once he got in, when he got ready to leave, when he, they waved the check in his face. I think it was like something like $10,000 bonus or something. It told him if he stays, he can get this $10,000 and he'll have also, uh, and they also give you incentives to get married and get a house. When you get married and you get a house and you get babies and stuff like that, they know the more that they give you, the more reliant you are on the military and that aid and those benefits because they have great benefits outside of sacrificing your life. You know, great medical benefits, great uh, education, all that. That's what's so attractive about it. It's the package, it's the benefits that a lot of people jump on. And a lot of people just don't give it a lot of thought. You go in thinking you're going to go in and get out in four years. Every time you try to get out, they weigh that check in your face, that bonus. Next thing you know, you've been there 30 years. So this is why I can't be too hard on the people that do go into the military. But I can tell you this. If you are black and you're going into the military to fight like consciously go out there and fight against people who ain't never called you the N-word, who ain't denying you benefits, who ain't denying you, uh, I mean, who, who, are, who ain't discriminating against you, who are not uh, gunning you down. Uh, 
Yeah, something's wrong with you. If, if, that, if that's your reason for going in, if you're going in to do stuff to people who ain't never done nothing to you, something is wrong with you, especially to do anything for Donald Trump. Donald Trump, he ain't got no problem starting the war, but he can't finish it. He ain't going to throw one punch. Ivanka ain't going to throw one punch. That little boy he got, Baron, he ain't going to break one fingernail. Trump Jr. ain't about to throw, he ain't going to throw one punch, one rock, nothing. surprise not the LAPD has been accused of falsifying records wrongly identifying residents as gang members on purpose the officers assigned to special patrols in South Los Angeles are suspected of falsifying field interview cards during stops and inputting incorrect information about those questioned in an effort to boost stop statistics. The investigation has uncovered at least one instance in which body cam footage and car recordings don't exactly match what the boys in blue were reporting. Emerson, retired Navy SEAL, founder of Escape the Wolf, a crisis management company. Today, we're going to talk about how to survive an active shooter. Unfortunately, there are active shooter scenarios going on almost daily in the United States. So here are some tips that will help you survive. There are three simple things you must do if an active shooter is in your vicinity. Run, hide, or fight. These are not in any particular order. The situation in your environment determines which one you do. Let's talk about run. A lot of times we think just run for a door, run for an exit, run for a window. But the reality is you need to slow down for a second. You need to determine where the shots are coming from. And just because you see a herd of people run by does not necessarily mean they're running in the right direction. So there's some science to this. If I were to fire off a gun in your building, down the hallway and around a corner, you would probably think it's actually coming from the opposite direction. That's because sound waves and how they propagate through hallways, stairwells, and in tight spaces, it can make you think the bang sound came from the right when in reality it came from the left. And this is why people inadvertently run towards gunfire. So stop for a second. Trust your eyes and question your ears in these situations. Don't just run. A big part of running is actually thinking it through ahead of time, knowing your routes. Whether you're at home, work, or your favorite coffee shop, think about where you would run all the time. That way, if shots are fired, you already know the route you're going to take and all you have to do is execute it. When you do run, try and run in a zigzag pattern. This is really important if you find yourself in a big open area like a parking lot or you're the only one running down a hallway and you know the shooter is right behind you. It forces the shooter 
to change windage, which is his movements left to right, and elevation, which is up and down. So if you're running sporadically and irregularly down the hallway, it makes it far more difficult for him to get any bullets accurately on you. It's human nature that if you see a herd of people go running by, you're gonna feel like you should join them. Don't. Take that opportunity to look, listen, and smell your environment. Know where the shooter is, listen to what's going on, and ensure that you're actually going to run the right direction. Plus, being part of the herd is exactly what the shooter is going to shoot at, a large body of people. Ideally, you're gonna be part of a much smaller crew or alone so that you increase survivability by not being part of the bigger pack. When you run, think about running in terms of sprints, not a marathon. So you're gonna run from cover to cover or from concealment to concealment. Now there's a difference between the two. Concealment is like hiding behind curtains. It takes me out of sight of the shooter's sight, but it doesn't stop bullets. So ideally, you choose cover over concealment because cover takes you out of sight, but it also stops bullets. It could be a granite desktop in your conference room, or if you're out in a parking lot, it could be the engine end of the vehicle because if you hide behind the trunk, bullets will zip right through it. So you want to identify things that stop bullets and then use those when you run. If you find yourself in a situation where you can't necessarily run or you can't exit the building all the way just yet and you have to hide in order to get out of sight, make sure you figure out your hiding locations ahead of time. We live in a very very small pattern of life. We're either at home, we're at work, our favorite coffee shops, the gym, wherever. This gives you time now to figure out, okay, what are the good hiding spots? Which gets me out of sight, but is not a dead end. It's just as important to identify dead ends as it is to identify good hiding spots, because you want to avoid dead ends. Dead ends are like bathrooms, for example. If you go into a bathroom, there is nothing in there to barricade the door properly and most bathrooms do not have another way to get out. So ideally, a good hiding spot allows you to barricade the doors and gives you an opportunity to escape. It can be a hallway that has multiple ways of egress and ingress. Whatever it is, just make sure your hiding spots give you other opportunities of escape. If you find yourself in a room and it's time to hide, make sure you barricade the door first. So the proper way of barricading a door is to stack stuff linear. You find the door, you place a table against it, and then a table behind that table or another piece of furniture behind that piece of furniture. The idea is to stretch that chain of furniture from the door to the opposing wall. So now the opposing wall actually becomes the doorstop and no one is gonna get inside that room. Keep in mind, anytime you're around that doorway, it's dangerous. That's why it's called the fatal funnel. Bad guys like to shoot into doors and doorways. So when you barricade a door, do it quickly and try and do it without putting yourself dead center in front of that door. Once the door is barricaded properly, immediately look for other exits or a way to get out of there. In the meantime, put your cell phone on silent. Shut out all the lights. Lock any other doors, windows, any other way in. Make sure those are barricaded as well. And then get quiet. Put yourself as low in the room or as high 
There's been people who have survived these by getting on top of the refrigerator in a break room. You have to assume the shooter might shoot through doors and walls. So don't put your torso in the line of fire of any of those bullets. If you find yourself in a situation where you can't run, you can't hide, and you know the shooter is getting closer and closer and closer to your location, then your last resort is to fight. And when you fight, you have to fight for your life, meaning your level of violence has to be greater than your adversary. And when he's coming with a gun and you don't have one, it's a good idea to team up. Grab other people who are willing to fight and make a quick plan. And it can look something like this, where, hey, you're gonna go for the legs, I'm going for the gun. You have to get control of the gun and then get control of the body. And then ideally, you separate the two. So one person is going for that gun. You're either grabbing it like a pull-up bar a chin-up, or an over-under. But whatever you do, get a positive grip, positive control of that weapon, and then let gravity do the rest of the work. Just drop to the ground. It's either gonna strip the gun out of their hands, or they're gonna go to the ground with it. And then the second or third person is gonna take out the body. In the MMA world, in the fighting world, it's all about gaining control of the spine. And the best way to do that is gaining control of either the head or the hips. But in times of stress, it's much easier to tackle hips than it is to try and get a hold of the head. So one person gets positive control of the weapon, another person is taking out the hips, and then separate the two from one another. Once you've got that weapon, you can either use it against the bad guy or you can use other improvised weapons in the room. But whatever you do, make sure you're fighting for your life. Keep in mind, when it's time to fight, your adrenaline is gonna be through the roof, and it's very hard to control your fine motor skills. So make sure you're using big movements, big tackles, big grabs. Those are the things, those gross motor skills are gonna work, and they're gonna work really well for you. When you tackle a guy, you're probably gonna put him through the wall. You're gonna have strength, and you're gonna have aggression that you've never had before but just make sure it's controlled and you use it properly. And remember, on some of this, you only got one try, so make it count. When it's time to fight, don't forget about improvised weapons. It can be a fire extinguisher, hit them over the head, spray them in the face. You can grab any kind of cleaning product, spray them in the eyes. You can grab a pair of scissors, stab them in the face. Anything goes, and make sure whatever you do, you go 100% because it's either you or him. Remember, the fight is all about creating pain, disarmament, and then taking down the shooter. And once you do so, maintain distance, restrain the shooter if necessary, and wait for first responders to arrive. Remember to ensure that the shooter is neutralized before you start helping victims. You cannot let that guy continue to roam around or turn your back on him to help someone. Ensure he's neutralized, then help the victims. So remember, in the unlikely event you hear shots fired, run, hide, fight. These are not in any particular order. Your environment, the situation, and your personal capability will decide what you're going to do. By using this mantra, you'll increase your odds of survival. to talk about the invention of Coca-Cola, America's favorite soft drink. <laughs> so
So like in the 1800s, John Pemberton was trying to make patent medicines. Basically they were fake medicines and most of them were just like herbal, who's he what's, who even cares. He was just trying to make anything that would sell. He was like, I want to make a fake medicine that made women think that they'll never be nervous or have farts and make men think that they can be smarter. So he decided to use a new ingredient, coca. Coca is from a plant. The South Americans would chew it and be like, we had so much energy and we weren't even hungry and we hiked the whole Andes. <laughs> but really, they were just on cocaine. John Pemberton was like, oh, I should put this into my new potion that I'm making. And basically he copied someone else's recipe called like Vin Mariani. He was like, well, I have wine. I put coca in there, a little of this cola in. The cola nut released a little bit of caffeine. And he, he basically was like, what I give you is a wine with cocaine. <laughs> Caffeine. Then people in Atlanta were like, no, nobody can sell alcohol because of temperance. He was like, okay, well, fine, I'll just make a temperance beverage. He went back into his laboratory and he decided to just put the coca and the cola together, but they were super bitter without the wine. So he added a ton of sugar and then he made it into like a drink. You know, he thought, oh, well, people will love this. It wasn't like he was like, I made a soda because nobody even had that yet. He had a friend named Frank Robinson <laughs> who was like, okay, well, I'll help you to sell your um, medicine soda drink thingy. First of all, you should um, change the K in the cola to a C and, and just call it what it is, Coca-Cola, and the two Cs will look really nice next to each other. And who wouldn't love that? So they would just advertise Coca-Cola as a medicine for your brain. They would say it's invigorating and stimulating and healthy for your nervous system using the exotic extract of the coca and cola nut <laughs> to make you super alive and ready to face your day. The first year, you only sold 25 gallons. 25,000 or 25 gallons? 25 gallons okay. in the year. He gave it to pharmacies. They had like uh, soda fountains and fun things and people did like it a lot. Oh, this is a gr great drink. They thought that it made them like invigorated and aware. People are basically drinking little cocaine soda. <laughs> me, 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 me. I need more. I wish I was alive then to drink the Coke, Coke, Coca Cola. <laughs> God, I miss so much from not being in the olden times. <laughs> the next year, you sold 200 gallons a month? <laughs> That's so much more. 12 months. <gasps> Reggie, stop it. Well, Reggie, goddamn.
Hold on. Okay, I got him. <clears throat> 12 months out of the year. We sold 2,000 gallons a month. No, yes? God damn it. He's on his deathbed dying of stomach cancer. And he's like, out of all of the patent medicines that I've tried to make, I've finally made a successful patent medicine. But what he never knew was that he actually made the most successful drink that humans will ever drink, ever. God, he was so successful and he doesn't know and he'll never know, ever. They still use coca leaves in modern-day Coca-Cola. So do the math on that one. Even if they don't have cocaine in them, they still use the leaves. And they took the cocaine out and putting it somewhere else. You've probably heard the stereotype. Black people. Black people. Black people. Black people just can't swim. For generations, this has been an all-too-familiar tale within the Black community. But here's something you may not know. Black children are drowning at three times the rate of white children, and years of racial segregation in America's pools may be to blame. In the United States, 64% of black children can't swim. My son, Genesis Holmes, was only 13 years old. He wanted to swim with his friends. In May 2014, police reported to a scene near a local high school in the small town of Hollywood, South Carolina. An unidentified teen was found floating in a pond off Highway 162. Dive and rescue teams scoured the area and recovered the body of Genesis Holmes. Genesis didn't make it back out because Genesis didn't know how to swim. All our life, most of us, honestly, we was told to stay from the water. It's like a family tradition that they had from generation to the next generation. So I taught my children to stay away from water. Just had so much plans. He had great plans for his life. Genesis's death is reflective of a darker trend of accidental drownings across the country. In the U.S., more than 10 people die from drowning each day. One in five of those deaths are children between the ages of 1 and 14. And most of those deaths are disproportionately black. So why is this happening? And why are black children drowning at such high rates? We tapped University of Montana history professor Jeff Wiltsey to talk about racism and the social history that shaped America's first public pools. The very first public pools were located exclusively in large northeastern cities, Philadelphia, Boston, New York. They were all in poor neighborhoods, what we call urban slums. For the poor children of New York, a million-dollar swimming pool, a luxury summer resort for the kids of the sweltering tenements and slums on east side. Where poor and working-class immigrants, native-born African-Americans lived, and, and that's the population that they were intended to serve. Sort of dirty working class boys and young men would plunge into the pool and then clean themselves in the water of the pool. It was essentially served as a large bathtub. That's right. 
The first public pools were not only racially inclusive, but they served as bathhouses for the poor, who often swam nude. For this reason, public pools originally prohibited men and women from swimming together. But after World War I, that all changed. After the war, Americans were earning more and working less. To give you a sense, the average work week went from 59 hours before the war to 51 hours after the war. This gave Americans a lot more time to enjoy leisure activities like swimming and eventually opened the door for new mixed gender pools. And it's the point at which a city gender integrates, allows males and females to use the same pool at the same time that cities and white swimmers impose racial segregation. In a nutshell, the basic reason was, you know, white public officials and white swimmers would not allow black men to interact with white women at such an intimate public space. Racial discrimination became normalized and institutionalized across the country. From the north to the south, white-only pools became hallmarks for racial exclusion, and they would stay that way until the 60s. Southern cities used Jim Crow laws to enforce segregation in pools and other public spaces, while northern cities used intimidation and violence to keep blacks out. All the while, local chapters of the NAACP worked to file lawsuits against neighborhood pools and beaches that denied blacks access. Pools went from being places for leisure to racial battlegrounds. And it would take two protests in Florida to change that. What are you prepared to do now, Dr. King? Well, we will uh, stand here and protest what we feel is a blatant injustice. On June 11, 1964, police arrested Dr. Martin Luther King and more than a dozen religious leaders after they staged a protest against racial segregation at the Monson Motor Lodge in St. Augustine, Florida. His arrest inspired others to act. Less than a week later, 16 rabbis joined a group of black and white protesters at the same hotel. As the rabbis prayed on the property, protesters jumped into a white-only pool to stage a swim-in. What happened next sent shockwaves across the country. That's the Motor Lodge hotel owner, James Brock, pouring acid into the pool to get protesters out. Media reports of the story sparked enough outrage to gain the attention of then-President Lyndon B. Johnson. Some activists even say it influenced Johnson to sign the Civil Rights Act less than a month later. All men are entitled to the blessings of liberty, yet millions are being deprived of those blessings, not because of their own failures, but because of the color of their skin. The bill outlawed segregation based on race, color, religion, or sex, a notion that until that point was common practice throughout most of the country. And while several places across the U.S. had already begun desegregating public spaces, by the time the Civil Rights Act was passed, it was too late. After World War II, white Americans left cities for the suburbs in pursuit of the highly commercialized American dream. You know the whole car, white picket fence, home in the suburbs. Now you might be thinking, what does white flight have to do with black people swimming? Well, the answer is a lot. Once white Americans left for the suburbs, cities throughout the country stopped investing in the upkeep of their public pools. 
So when blacks and other minorities finally regained access after the Civil Rights Act, most of them had already closed. Tens of thousands of private club pools developed in suburban communities. And what that enables suburban communities to do, members to do, is to control who has access to those pools and who they determined would not have access to those pools and the swim lessons that occurred at those pools. Today, gentrification is the driving force behind modern-day pool segregation. So in other words, it isn't so much your race that determines your likelihood of being able to swim, but your class. For example, affluent suburban communities are far more likely to have access to pools than their city counterparts. Look at the numbers, and you can see why. There are more than 10 million residential pools compared to the 300,000 public pools across the country. On top of that, public pools are disappearing. Since 2009, more than 1,800 public pools have closed across the country. Some rural towns like Hollywood, South Carolina, where Genesis Homes lived, never even opened one. Genesis cried out for help because he didn't know how to swim. If me and my husband had gave him swim lesson, Genesis would have made it out. After Genesis's death, Jennifer Holmes couldn't stop thinking about the what-ifs. What if she had learned how to swim? What if Genesis had swim lessons? That's when she came up with an idea. Being that I lost our baby, I had to do something to where that I could let others know how important water safety is, that what we were taught is not good for us. And why is it it's important to learn how to swim, to help reduce drowning out in the rural area. And she didn't stop there. Holmes became a lifeguard and raised more than $15,000 for the Genesis Project to bring swimming lessons to black children in her small town. It wouldn't take long before the rest of the community noticed. After hearing about Genesis, the Charleston County Parks Foundation gave Holmes $3 million towards opening the town's first public pool, the Genesis Pool. We should rejoice this day that many lives will learn how to swim. We honor Genesis Holmes, and we honor all that went this tragic way. We don't care where you're from. You are welcome to learn about water safety. Thank you. When Genesis was about five, six years old, he told me about amazing vision that he had, that he was sitting in a palm of a man hand, and it was huge. Mom, I'm going to do big things, you know? <laughs> it's like, Genesis, come on, you're five, six years old, big things. He said, yes, Mom, you should have saw his hands. His hand was so amazing. I was sitting in the clouds. And when they told me that Genesis and his friends were swimming, and Genesis did me up. My life changed. Our life changed. And all I can remember is that Genesis said, Mom, I'm going to help many people. And so many people are going to help. 
Welcome to Candid Africa, truthful and unapologetic. Then, of course, there are those with very sharp eyes who, who begrudge us for what God has given us. They wish our oil was theirs. They wish our diamonds and gold and all we have by way of underground worth, all that wealth they wish was their own. How can these natives continue to have that? When they look at us and America with its vast territory, with all those automobiles, the flying ones and the ones that run on our roads, the railways, the trains, and they say, ah, the oil we have is not enough, the fuel we have is not enough to sustain us, not enough diesel. Let us store this ours. There is loss in Africa. They don't know what to do with it in Africa. We'll get it by hook or by crook. And they cause wars where there, is, there has been peace. Suddenly there is war. Suddenly there is war in Iraq where Saddam Hussein, he might have been a dictator, but there was peace in his country. They want his oil. And Bush says, no, this man, as an excuse, he must open the door. This man is a cruel man. He is preparing to slaughter others. He has weapons, weapons of mass destruction. Bush goes to the United Nations. No, the United Nations cannot sustain it, no. Well, with or without the United Nations, I will go. Fight this man. He's a danger, a danger to the world. And sure, Saddam Hussein, they arrest him from his hideout and they had him tried, they had him executed. Later, ah, you know, Mr. Bush, we told a lie. Ah, but we know how to put it to the world. Ah, now we have found that Saddam Hussein had no weapons of mass destruction. In the meantime, Bush and his brother had a company sucking oil in Iraq. These are facts. The same story is told about poor Gaddafi. Killing civilians. This comes to the United Nations Security Council, Chapter 7. He gets they get the NATO powers, the two-thirds majority. 
and there they go, all of them. Gaddafi is killed. Now look at, look at the turmoil there is in Iraq. Look at the turmoil there is in Libya. All that to confuse the situation so they can have a, an excuse to go in and draw, if you will, as we fight each other. They are busy drawing a, a, a fuel and enriching themselves. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of Real Life Radio Show. I am your host, Jenna, alongside my partner, my co-host, Brother Roz. Brother Roz, how you doing this evening? Hey, peace and love to you and all of the calls and listeners. I'm actually pretty good. I'm just tired. Uh, but I'm good. I'm good. I'm glad to be with everybody. It's been a, a long week, I would say, to say the least, but a, but a pretty good one, I would say. Still learning, as always. What's, what's going on on your side? Uh, it has been a constant rebuild, but, you know, got to find a way to yes, make sir. it happen. Still learning. Yes, sir. And uh, interested in tonight's show. It's a, uh, it's a lot going on in the world, yet we oh, still have much. to pay attention to ourselves. So go ahead and open us up tonight. All right. Um, I didn't get to take many notes because I was getting hit up about the number change. We do apologize. That was like a last minute thing. Didn't realize it was changed until after we already put out all of the information. So I just tried to hit up everybody who I originally got in contact with to update them. So I was actually doing that in the beginning of the program in the background. So I didn't get to write down anything. So I hope you took copious notes because I have a basic idea of the videos you played just because um, I have the, nah, the original. I, I walked through a few points. Uh, okay, go ahead. The water right off the back was something that's important. Uh, I've been trying to implement that here uh, within that the last year or so, you know, as far as making an effort to drink more water. Uh, but yeah. some of the reasons why are uh, – you know they important as well. I hadn't even. I was. I've been drinking a little bit of uh, Himalayan salt in my water. On, you know, what I'm saying that helps to alkalinize stomachs. it. Say again. I said that helps to alkalinize it. Yeah, but just to drink yeah. water every morning. That's that convenience is so true. Yeah, you should try to drink a try to drink an adult anyway, a minimum of a gallon a day. That'll keep you pretty much hydrated. The most people are actually dehydrated, myself included. Um, so I actually, I would say like ninety-five to ninety-seven percent of the time, I drink water. I don't, I don't, I don't drink a lot of juice. Um, I do have tea, which is another good way of getting water as well. It's just enhanced with with um, plant material, but um, but for the most part, I drink water all the time. Um, and like I said, I'm a tea drinker. I'm not a a, a big sugar, add sugar to tea kind of person. So, you know, that's how I do my thing. But the thing with water, too, is that it helps you to look younger. Sometimes a lot of the wrinkles people get in their faces, sometimes it has to do with being dehydrated. Um, water just helps to balance you out. Most times if your body uh, believes that it's not going to get adequate water, it's going to hold on to water. So you get the water weight gain 
So if you are carrying excess water, it's because your body is being starved of the water. So it thinks that it's going to die. So it's going to start sucking up and holding on to as much water as possible. So once you start getting that gallon a day, then you'll find yourself flushing out that excess water. So it, it's, it's just um, the thing with water is that it even deal, helps with your blood pressure. Because if you're not hydrated, then that makes your blood get thicker. The thicker your blood is, the harder it is for your heart to pump it throughout your system. Um, also, when your blood is thick, it's easier for it to clot. So having adequate water is essential. Um, there is a, a, it's a, let me see if I can. Dude, why are you thinking about that? It was, it was nice how you uh, threw in that Coca-Cola as well. Because a oh, lot I, of I us want to go in on that. Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. Okay. So there's, um, there's a, a something called natokinase. And natokinase helps to keep your, your blood uh, thinner so that it can easy, further, more easily flow through your, through your veins. Um, sometimes if people have uh, circulation issues, they'll tell people to take um, aspirin because aspirin will actually help to thin out the blood. But you should also have adequate water if that's what you're doing. But natokinase does something similar. And it is actually an enzyme, I believe. I think it's an enzyme. But um, pretty much it really, really is good for that particular purpose. Um, so, yeah, I would just say water, you just have to have it. <laughs> it's just something that's essential. I'll put it like that. So um, to move on to the Coca-Cola thing, yeah, I don't know if uh, many people knew that Coca-Cola originally used to have cocaine in it. And um, the thing about cocaine, one of the things she didn't say in the article is that when the Native Americans – and actually, Coca-Cola is actually a truly American-African drink because the coca plant comes from uh, South America, Central America, and the cola nut is from Africa. That's why they said they had to change the K to a C. All of the C sounds pretty much in traditional African languages. They use the letter, letter K for it. Um, so that's why it's called the cola nut. And it actually it, it uh, provides a lot of energy. I think it has some level of caffeine in it which is what helps it to get, helps people to get energy from it when you have it. But that cola nut and then the coca leaf, of course, we know that that's where they get cocaine from, but they didn't tell you when the natives used to um, use the coca leaf, they would chew it like a snuff and pack it in the corners of their mouths and just hold it there. And pretty much when they would go on excursions, sometimes they would have to hunt for meat. And sometimes those hunts could last days. If a lot of the wildlife was depleted in a particular area, they would have to travel further away from their villages in the forest in order to find the meat that they were looking for. So they would end up chewing the coca leaf in order to go on these long excursions and they could travel two, three, four days without eating because cocaine also uh, suppresses the appetite and it gave them vitality as if they had all the energy in the world. So that's what they would use it for traditionally outside of using it for ceremonies. And the difference is they never were addicted to it. When my son went to Machu Picchu when he was in high school, he had a trip. He went to Machu Picchu, and he said that um, he actually had tea because they still make the coca leaf tea. And um, he said it helped him with a headache that he had gotten while he was on the trip, and that was one of the traditional remedies for the headache. Um, and it worked. It worked wonders for him. But the thing is that it's not addictive because it's in its natural state. You don't find a bunch of coca leaf addicts roaming the mountains of the Andes. These people just use it for their traditional ceremonies. 
um, or they would use it in the capacity in which their ancestors used it to go on long excursions where they needed energy and they would not be able to eat for a long period of time. They would use it in that capacity and nobody was walking around addicted to it. Once it was taken out of its natural state and became cocaina, as we know it, then at that point it became a drug and people, of course, can be addicted to a drug because of the different centers that it activates in the brain. So the dopamine centers and so forth. So ultimately, Coca-Cola started off as just what she said, pretty much a fountain drink in pharmacies that everybody just fell in love with. Um, she is correct. It is the most widely and longest longest used drinks in modern history. It, it just is. It's the most popular thing that's ever hit the planet, regardless of what it is. And they're still using the coca leaf in its production. So when she said at the end, they took the cocaine out and they did something else with it. We all know what she was referring to, but the bottom line is it still has the coca leaf in it. So there has to be some level of cocaine in it. I don't care what they said. That's just my opinion. I could be incorrect. I'll leave it at that. Did well, you have any, um, was, what you going to say I about just, it? I just want to let the people know that it was, a, a parody. It was, a. uh, it's Comedy called Drunk Central. History. Say again. It's called Drunk History. They do it on the um on the Comedy Channel, and they actually deal with historical events and real things that happen. But they do it in a comedic way, as if the person was like telling the story while they were drinking in some capacity. Sometimes they'll do it in a bar setting. Sometimes they'll do it in a personal setting, like that video. So that's why she sounded all loopy. It sounded like she was smoking weed to me, but um, <laughs> but she was all goofy acting in the video. So that's why it sounded like that. But they actually deal with real history. So the information that sh that sh she uh, brought up and discussed is actually historically accurate. I knew this story before I even found the video. I just thought it was fascinating. And I didn't think many people knew that history as far as that's concerned. Some people know, but it's not a widespread thing where everybody walks around. You could have that discussion and they would be aware that that's the actual history of how Coca-Cola came to be. Yeah, I done heard not that particular story, but similar ones to it, you know, being mm -hmm. right here on the borderline of Georgia, because it's widely okay. used here as well. Uh, okay. Let me get back to Go ahead, this. what are you going to say? Going back to this, uh, get to this next video, that's what I was trying to find, my fault. Oh, no problem. The identity theft. <clears throat> I'm really interested in seeing uh, what what has you thinking about this Rick Ross scenario right now. Now, what made me think about that was that you just had uh, what's his name, Juicy J, from Three Six Mafia, come out and apologize for all of the drug references that he made throughout his entire history as an MC now dealing with at least after the death of juice world there was something in that situation that made him feel some remorse um because there were other people who died as well uh and i don't think he thought he may have influenced them like a pimp c they were both contemporary so i don't think he ever thought he his music influenced pimp c to do what he did because pimp c was just doing what he do i think because he understood that his music would have influenced someone young like juice world to do it maybe that's what triggered it i don't know i'm not him 
but you have this rapper who created an entire I mean, Jay-Z said that one of the greatest one-line proverbs that I had ever heard in my life, and I'm not a Jay-Z fan at all. I was never a big Jay-Z fan, even when he was popular. I mean, I liked some of his music, but he was never like a guy who I was like a diehard, like had to run out and buy every Jay-Z album. I had quite a few of them, but I wasn't a super fan of his for my own reasons. But he said, the worst thing in the world is to become successful at being somebody else. Because when you when you want to go back to being yourself, no one will believe you. And you will not be able to fill your own shoes properly, pretty much, because of the fact that you've built this entire life that really isn't true. And to me, Rick Ross is the perfect example of that. You have a, a, a guy who actually sold more drugs probably almost than any other person in, in the history of the United States as far as black people is concerned, Ricky Ross. Did his time in jail, like they said, came out, became, uh, literally, he, he goes all around the country speaking to children, trying to guide them away wow. from gangs, guide them away from selling drugs and doing making the mistakes that he made. And then you have a rapper that comes out, takes his name, and I'm pretty sure the reason that, that Rick lost the battle, even though that's the name on his birth certificate, is probably because Rick Ross copywrote the name. Once a name is copywritten, then it's yours. That was the same problem that, that Biggie had. Biggie couldn't call himself Biggie Smalls, which was going to be his rap name because somebody else actually had the name. If I remember correctly, it was a white rapper. And he tried to buy it. He, he tried everything he could do legally to get the guy to give him the name. He said no. So as a result, he had to get the name Notorious B.I.G., and that's what he went with. And then on the records, of course, they called him by the name he was known in the streets for, which was Biggie Smalls. But he could never actually have that be his actual moniker in the hip hop industry due to that discrepancy. And I'm pretty sure that's the same reason why Rick Ross, the actual Rick Ross, lost the legal battle for his own name. And the crazy part is the dichotomy of it is this. The paradox is this. You have a man who is a legend as far as the pharmaceutical business and he is fighting to stop people from making the mistakes he made and you have this phony <laughs> whose life is completely fabricated who has an entire career you know a multi-millionaire successful off of uh promoting the lifestyle that the actual guy who did what he's talking about is trying to reverse and that is the problem, I think, in general, with the way some of our people think. Yes, we will ask for sympathy and empathy because of what our ancestors went through. And we then that that should be what it is. We will ask for sympathy and empathy because of what white people are doing to us in modern times. Yes, and it should be that way, and it should be it should stop. But at the same time, you have people who are from where we're from they are who we are and they are literally the most anti-black self-hating people and they're putting out product that is toxic to the way that the world treats us but yet we're mm -hmm. asking for the opposite and not only that he's a multi-millionaire because the same people who are saying that they want the opposite are buying the records and then some of them are actually doing what his records are saying, killing other black people. 
So there's the insanity. That's why I wanted to, to, to use that video. There's the insanity of black psychopathology in the system of white supremacy. We're asking for these things, but yet we're doing and we're facilitating the very things that are causing the society to believe that black life is expendable and the cheapest life you can buy, you can find. It reminds me of Dr. Wilson. Before she passed away, she had told this story a couple of times, um, but I heard it on the cows. She talked about traveling. She was in the airport, and she was, I think, in D.C., about to go somewhere else. And she said that there was a Chinese guy who she struck up a conversation with, and it was about racism, white supremacy. That's usually what she does. She's a doctor. She's a scientist, so she's trying to gather as much information about the, the, the way the human mind works in regards to white racism and white supremacy. So at one point in the conversation, the Chinese guy asked her, do black people know that they are presented to the rest of the world in a way that dehumanizes them? And that is why their experience, no matter where they go, is the same, even with other non-white people? She said, some do, some don't. He said, those black people who perform in the music videos, perform in the, vi in the movies, and uh, de degrade and denigrate themselves for a dollar, do they understand that those things are being propagated around the world because U.S. movies, U.S. music is the most popular thing around the planet, but it's the most anti-black, white supremacist uh, mediums that you can ever come across. And she said, yes, they know what they're doing. Some of these people are doing it for money. And he shook his head and he walked away. Because in Chinese culture, they don't allow themselves to be disrespected like that. In Jewish culture, they don't run around calling each other kites. They don't. Vietnamese don't run around calling each other gooks. The only people who think that we have claimed something that was created to destroy us is black people. And then, like Clebone Sloan said in Bastards of the Party, it's easy to kill a nigga. It's hard for me to call you brother and then shoot you in the face. But it's easy for me to be like, yo, nigga, and I'm going to shoot you in the face because you a nigga. But somehow we think we adopted a word that you, you can't change the meaning of. It is what it is. And I'm not saying this as if I'm high and mighty. I used to make music. And I thought the fullest expression of, of, of my artistic merit was to be able to say whatever the heck I wanted. And I did. <laughs> and I didn't use the word nigger profusely, but in certain songs, I used the word. And as an adult now, I regret that I did that. But I was more confused. And I was a young, I was a child, pretty much, just trying to <laughs> get the heck up out of where I was living. And my situation. So for me, music was it because the other alternative was pretty much criminal. So I did what I did, but thankfully, I understood when I was old enough that, man, yeah, that was a, a mistake. But it's recorded for posterity. <laughs> it really is. It's recorded. So I can't do anything about it. But the truth is that we're the only ones who do this. And we can't have this circle jerk of wanton respect wanting not to be treated, mistreated, abused, racially terrorized, genocided, but yet we genocide ourselves. And it starts with what we call 
entertainment. I call it intercontainment because we've been in a container of self-destruction for many hundreds of years in this country. Well, and we can't even we, agree on the fact that we are suffering in a system of white supremacy in order to do something about it. Everybody got their tribe and their ideology that go along with that tribe. And whoever's not a part of that tribe is F you. And when you listen to that video and Ricky, Ricky, Freeway Ricky talks about his experience in trying to make contact with Rick Ross. We do that to each other all the time. The difference is there's sometimes tragedies that go along with that. One brother will try to reach out to another one. The other one will ignore him. You'll F that. <laughs> and then before you know it, the next one catch him flipping and shoots him or just attacks him or beats him to death or whatever it is. Because we don't respect ourselves, so we don't respect each other. And that, to me, was an exemplary example of how that works, using two very well-known people, one who did something bad and is trying to atone, one who came from a good background, and for some reason, well, not for some reason, we all know, he was told that to make those millions of dollars, you have to sell destruction to your people and fill them prison beds, them private prison beds that we all have stock in. And I'm sure he probably has stock in some of them. And I'll leave it at that. Go ahead, Jenna. Nah, you, I'm, I'm going to let it go. We got a caller, though. I'm going to let see what they think. Uh, area sure. code 213, your mic is open. What is your name? Where are you calling from? And what is your question or comment? Well, we may... Uh, your mic may be muted, or I just I just mute them. I don't think they was ready. So my apologies. Okay. Just open your mic back up whenever you're ready. Uh, you got two different people you discussing now because you got the Rick Ross thing and then you got the Juicy J. You say uh, the Juicy J thing is what made you think of that. No, yeah. no, no. What happened was when I heard this video – it made me think of that. The difference is, of course, Juicy J was a guy who rapped about drugs more than anything else. And this Juice World dude who passed away, I think for him, because he, he actually said before he died that it was actually Future who really made him want to try drugs. And he already had mental health issues and emotional problems. So listening to Future influenced him. But 3-6 Mafia influenced Future who influenced him. So that was it. What I'm, what I'm saying is this. You have one guy who rapped about drugs and is realizing the destruction that he wrought in the lives of people who looked up to him and who wanted to be like him and do the drugs that he did and ended up dead. So he atoned for that, and hopefully his music moving forward will not... He, well, he said he's not going to rap about drugs anymore, period. Now you have a rapper who adopted a fake lifestyle, became a millionaire, took the name of somebody who was still a, a, a living person who was trying to atone for the things that he did, yet he's speaking about the very things that the person who's trying to atone for what he did, did. He has wider reach because he's a rapper. Right. So and he's influencing the lives of the very children that Rick Ross travels around the country to talk to, to steer away from that. He makes it look appealing, and he has the same name. Not only that, he lost in court to not to be able to not have this guy use his name because that's his birth name, his name on his birth certificate. 
Even record labels have yeah, taken people's names from artists before. Like when Trial Call Quest broke up, that's why they broke up. Jive Records owned that name. So they were like, we're not performing under that name no more. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So th- that's the whole thing. Like, pe- I don't think many people understand if you weren't in the music business, you wouldn't really understand. But there, there is a such thing as actually owning your name. And if your record label copyrights your name before you do, it could be the name on your birth certificate. You will never be able to use it on stage. That's what made Prince have to, to go the whole androgynous symbol route. He didn't own his own name. Tupac Shakur had to copyright his name. That's what I'm saying. So that's what I thought was the irony in that whole situation, how that went down and just just like, wow, just a, a perfect example of how a lack of black, black self-respect looks and how black self-respect looks all in the same situation. And you have one guy that's famous with more reach doing the speaking destruction and one guy who actually wrought the destruction trying to save lives, but he can't do it on the massive scale of the rapper Rick Ross. And for every school he goes to, probably 70 to 90% of those children listen to the destructive Rick Ross and see those videos with the flashy cars and be like, F with that Rick Ross say, I like this Rick Ross better. He got a fat beat to what he's saying. Yeah, I want to know the details. I want to know the details of his real life because some of them know who he is. That is true. Yes. I don't had that discussion a long time ago. I was just wondering why you had that, you had brought that up. Uh, Well, the main thing is parents, watch what you let your children listen to. (laughs) Like, seriously. Watch what you let your children listen to. But we could jump, move from there. I think we landed on that long enough. I wanted to go into the military, the brother in the military, talking about the Iraq scenario and how people are making light of of him having to risk his life. And I think Willie D said a lot of poignant things, especially the fact that a lot of these young people don't know American history. They don't know how black people who fought for America were treated once they got back from war. And they're like he said, they're going in it trying to make money to survive or trying to go to school and, and not have to suffer the consequences of being in debt for the rest of their lives. So you understand the motivating factors. And then he also talked about the people who willingly go in and know exactly what they're doing and don't care. Because there are quite a few black people with that exact mentality and they'll beat their chest like a silverback gorilla. Matter of fact, let me kill that. <laughs> it's a bad metaphor and I don't do metaphors. They'll be so proud to say that they fought for America and, you know, all of this craziness about just going around the world for the white man, doing his bidding, wreaking well, havoc in other countries, and then you want to complain about the immigrants coming here when the American military, including the black people who join, are directly responsible for the conditions in those countries that make those people end up coming here. And then we want to get mad and we want to talk all the craziness and you have all these groups and these groups want to be anti-immigrant, but you have people that could potentially be in your own family doing the bidding of these white people overseas, creating the conditions that force them to run. Because if you're in a country that is unstable, you're going to want to go where you can be safe and raise your children just like everybody else. That's all we want is a safe, decent place to raise our children and to be comfortable and happy and healthy. That's it. 
So you can't fault these people for coming here because this is the most stable place. But they don't realize that America is a hellhole itself until they get here. It just seems more stable. But I'm telling you, it takes nothing for it will take nothing for America to go to straight anarchy. I think there's an anarchy bubbling under the surface that don't need very much for it to tip off. And I think that's coming from white Americans specifically. Well, yeah, that, but we all have to grow into that knowledge, uh, especially when mm-hmm. we don't have to deal with them on a regular basis while you're coming up. I mean, as far as the authority yeah. figures, yes, but mm-hmm. interaction, that comes along later. But uh, back to what Willie D was saying, all of those, mm-hmm. uh, not just black people, just everybody who goes in for poverty, uh, and it's not just right. poverty, you know. <laughs> just letting some of my information go, I went as an alternative. You know what I'm saying? So it's a lot of that, too. They do uh, dangle things in front of your face as far as checks, uh, jail time. They send people to the military (laughs) for that, too. You know, Uh, they put all of this. So it's it's shoved at you. And some of us, especially when we don't know the uh, history and all of that and the different options that we have, and the programs and what have you, we just go into it, another body, you know, mm-hmm. find out later in life. But what he was talking about, uh, as far as the other people, he was meaning not just going over there to, uh, going over there to terrorize in general. They joined the mm-hmm. military so that they could shoot somebody and take over something. Sure. We have those, too, in the community. Watch out for them. They may not have been able to get into the military. That kind of goes to that open shooter. You know, we don't have to deal with that too much. Excuse me. We deal with it in different ways, and they call them gang shootings. You know. Right. Very, very true. So that was. I think that. Go ahead. ahead. What are you going to say? No, I was, I said, I thought that was important because a lot of people hear shots and they just, you know, they panic, like you stated. Uh, It's not a lot of people who sit back and look and see what's going on. Like he was saying, stay stay out of the groups. Uh, But I can hold on to that for a little bit. We got a caller, a call out of NY. What is your name? Where you calling from? What is your question or comment? It's uh, Cujo coming, coming from uh, New York. Greetings, gentlemen. Um, Greetings, Cujo. Uh, Good hope day. all is well going. Yes, sir? No, I just I said good right to hear there, you, that's yeah. all. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's, it's good to hear from you. Good to hear from you, brothers, man. Good to hear. Yeah, peace. Um, uh, just, uh, just commenting on some of the things, man, especially um, – I know so many people and I have them in my family that have done military, that have done, um, put in some time in the service. And, uh, it's not an easy thing for them because I could tell that they're aware of a lot of the, the prejudice and, and the hate that they deal with in military itself, you know, because it's not like they're just, they're signing up and they're, they're freed from dealing with those bonds. They're dealing with, you know, so-called white men and women coming from all over the country that may have never seen a black person before, you know? So 
Yeah, a it, variety a, of racism. A, sorry? A variety of racism. Exactly. Exactly. And um it, it's a situation where I I you know, I I feel like they're victims too. And I don't know if I could have ever made the decision they made. It's, it's a hard decision because I feel I feel the same way as I, I remember a Rakim song spoke about this in general, where he spoke about the fact that here he is, um, I think it was Casualties of War, where he's speaking about the fact that here he is overseas fighting, but he's fighting against people that look like him. Mm-hmm. You know, you are, yeah, and it's, and it's ill because we look at this and we, we do this, we're doing the same thing in our own neighborhoods and, it, and it's hard, it's a hard fight. But it takes, it's going to take a lot of time and awakening from us to kind of get to that point. But we have to keep pointing out the fact that this is not something that's our nature. It's been taught to us by our so-called oppressors. And we, we have to keep put it, point, pointing that emphasis out there that this is not how we naturally are. We This has been taught by us. And um, I bring up something because uh, one of my coworkers today gave me a phone call because we have um, two, we have a Haitian manager, sorry, a Dominican manager and a Dominican director. And both of these men are so anti-non-white that it's ridiculous. <laughs> um, wow. And, and, my, and my Haitian co-worker said to me, because you know Haitians and Dominicans do not get along. Um, he said to me, he said, you know, he said, you know what? I would have rather the racist white man than to deal with a Dominican man. Because at least I know where I stand. I know he's not going to go overboard. He's not even going to care about me that much. But unfortunately, we have these two Dominican guys, and they have to prove, they have to go extra hard to show the white people that they're not showing any favoritism. And he said that's the most difficult part, he said, that he's having to deal with. You know, and I and I feel for him because this is something wow. that this is that that's old school plantation mentality, straight up. Because yeah. you know, and I and I was just speaking to to my lady about this is that they would send out another slave to whip another slave, and it's not like you can hold back. <laughs> you know, you got to whip harder than the master would to show that you're not showing any favoritism. Yeah, you know, so you see that with police officers today. It's yeah. the same mentality. Yeah, you see that with the the real, real ultra violent, ultra aggressive black police officers, whether they're male or female, it's the same sort of thing. They they just don't tend to talk about it publicly. You'll yeah. find a few documentaries yeah. out there, but for the most part, you know that blue wall of silence is, as they call it, proverbially speaking. You, you know that it's real because they won't talk about it publicly. And some of them will come out after the fact, after years of doing just that, <laughs> you know, so they've gotten it under their belts already and they either left that business. So now they feel free to talk about it or they just some, some of them, not many might feel remorseful for some of the things that they've done and they'll speak about it in a documentary or something like that. And that's about it. But yeah, it's real. That's about it. Similar to the uh, yeah. Juicy J incident. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, I wanted to ask you, brothers, what did you guys think about um, this recent um, bombing and everything? I mean, uh, I feel like 
you you talking about the uh the Iranian bombing? Yes. Yes. Oh, that that speaks directly to uh uh M- what is his name, Raz Mugabe? Uh yeah, Robert Mugabe, yeah, President Mugabe. Mugabe. Speaks directly to what he was saying, your question does. You know, it's things over that is needed. How we normally get stuff. We send bombs hmm. and then we take it. Well, Excuse he, me. He while I'm saying we, I'm, the unrest I'm, that I was talking about. I'm meaning, uh, I'm meaning America. Let me quit saying we. I feel you, yes. But I, like he broke <laughs> down how that unrest is created and what what's really happening. While, like he said, while the two, while two sets of non-white people are killing each other, they're stealing the oil. And it's the same thing here. In the so-called ghettos of America, yes, we argue amongst ourselves, and they get all the money because they own all the businesses. And when they leave, they take all the money in their cash registers that they get from black people, whose money does not turn turn over in their uh, neighborhoods but one time. It goes from the paycheck to the bank account, from the bank account to the next man. In Jewish communities, mm-hmm. their dollar stays in their community. Over it flips Jewish hands over a hundred times before it ever leaves the community. And we wonder why mm-hmm. their community is so financially powerful. Yeah. We get money today, and it's going by tonight, and it's going to somebody who's non-black. But the reason being is because it's in most of our neighborhoods, in the majority mm-hmm. of our neighborhoods, there's nobody. There's most of the time there's no. I don't want to say none, but most of the time there's no black people to give you money to. Uh, one of the harder things to deal with That's that true. is when they. Uh, when we are building things in our neighborhoods, just black men, women building businesses, we tend to get the short end of the stick because we, as black people, not all of us, you know, I guess we got to say that now, but we tend not to want to give that chance because of the sometimes the lower quality. Don't give them enough chance to build because we need ours perfect now. Like, so how do we, uh, what's your thoughts on that part? What what part was that again? As far as, as uh, we tend to don't, when we see a lot of uh, black businesses, if it's, let, let's uh-huh. say, Pacific genre, right, uh, electronics, yes. somebody bringing their own electronics out. Yeah. It's, na- think- it's national. We know everything go through bugs, but we don't want to purchase those bugs that may or may not be there. And we get something that's what we believe to be more reliable. Well, it just ties into the psychology that most people in the world have been fed, that the best things in the world come from white people. I've said this a million times. Black people are most successful at boycotting themselves. We do not boycott anybody else but other black people. We have the, the most successful, longest-running boycott in history, and it's of our own people. It's our own people's businesses we boycott. And we the first ones to say, yo, that so-and-so over there, I ain't buying nothing from him. Yo, F him. And, it might, it, and he might have the same exact products that you buy in the white store. It's just the fact that we don't like to see each other doing well. Or you'll have um, 
you have a black person go in and just complain, 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 or ask for a thousand discount. You never see a black person go to a white store, go to a Walmart and say, hit me with a 50% discount. But as soon as we see a black person selling something and you, and the thing is like, as a person whose wife has her own business and I'm going to be doing some things down the road, like people don't understand how hard it is to try and do your own thing and like how much work it takes to put into your own business in any capacity. Like it really takes a lot of dedication, a lot of work and a lot of love too. Cause if you selling a product that people can use and people benefit from, then you have to care about what you're making. So there's a lot that goes into actually even attempting to do something like that. And then you have the people who look like you literally just boycott your business. They'll go right to the white guy next door or the, or the Asian person or some, just as long as it's somebody who's not black. <laughs> like literally, that's how we think. That is exactly how a lot of us think. The only time that I've seen consistently where we support each other is in the, as and, and these are black people that I've personally seen is in areas that are heavily uh, that are heavily immigrants. So if you go to Crown Heights, Brooklyn, or you go to Flatbush, Brooklyn, you're going to find American Africans, black Caribbean people and black Africans all living around each other. The majority of the business owners will probably be Caribbean or African, but you have American Africans owning businesses there, and everybody's patronizing everybody's business. And it's been like that for a long time. They just starting to gentrify Flatbush like heavy, heavy now. But that's that's the only time that I've seen that. But I've never been to an area that is majority American African where American Africans own a significant number of those businesses. You'll be lucky if you find less than a handful. And usually it'll probably be like a corner store or something like that. Um, and we know that most corner stores where black people live don't sell, you know, things that are going to keep you alive. <laughs> it's pretty much you just going, you're in the food desert. It's only now, like in recent years, you're finding that black people are like, hey, I want to fill a niche. I know that in my neighborhood we don't have fruits and vegetables, so I'm going to open up a fruit stand. Like, is you finding that popping up now because we're becoming more health conscious collectively? But the truth is that we boycott our own people. We really, really do, and that that is the the, the beginning of change. Is the ability to change your financial situation first. Then you can use those finances to buy politicians, and then you start making those politicians do what you pay them to do. And then you put them in a comp or you catch them in a compromising situation and you hold that in your pocket so you can use that as leverage. That's what white people do. That's their history. Yeah, but they we haven't learned that yet. Well, <laughs> they, they had time to cultivate that as well. You know what I'm saying? So Oh, of course. Just oh, gotta... I'm not saying it in a, an accusatory manner. I'm not nah, blaming I know, black I do. people. I do. Yeah, yeah. I just want to make that clear. I'm not blaming our people for that. You know, I've always said it. The root cause of our problem are white people. The problem is they have been most successful at projecting themselves onto us, and we function as extensions of them. And the crazy part is they do it so successfully. I was watching this little clip on YouTube was a commercial of this guy. He's a, um, he was a hostage ne negotiator for like, I think 20 or 30 years. 
traveling around the world, all around the country, too, dealing with all kinds of hostage situations. And he said the most important job of a negotiator is to get to know the hostage and their family and also the person that they're negotiating with. And then he said this. One of the most successful ways of negotiating is to get someone to do your will but believe they thought of it themselves. And he talks people into doing what he wants them to do, but they believe that they had the thought themselves. That's what white people did to us. And a lot of those stories that we tell or that we find and that we bring to, to, to our people that deal with the psychology of the, or the black psychopathology based on our experience in the system of white supremacy, it comes from that. They have projected themselves onto us. And like Malcolm X said, we walk around with the mass of we sick mentality and we just don't know it. They gave us the idea and we think we thought of it ourselves to want to be white. Go ahead, Cujo. Like white people. Go ahead. Um, Was that Cujo? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, it was something that um, I'm, I'm noticing as far as what I've been reading. Um, in Dr. Amos Wilson's book, uh, Black on Black Violence, yes. I noticed he deals with the fact that in order for the system to function the way that it functions, we have to be violent and counterintuitive to each other constantly. And Absolutely. Then I, then I looked into, I, finished, I just finished... Um, uh, what you record again? Uh, Dr. Curry's book, The Man Not. And yes. he's almost, he says a lot of the same things, but way more in depth. And I think, he, let's just say if you read the book, he tries to cover, he, he, he covers so much that you have to go back and reanalyze what you just read. And I'm noticing, mm. the, and one of the correlations, because Gus just had the guest on, I think he was a guest that um, the book he wrote was called Revisiting Ruckus. Um, about um, sexual molestation of uh, slaves, male slaves in um, colonial times. Yeah. And, and the thing about it is that I noticed in, in all these books and all these writings is that they're staring academia, um, mm-hmm. and a lot, of, a lot of academia is dominated, obviously, by white, but gender mm-hmm. studies mainly dominated by white women. They don't tend to speak about black male suffrage. And the reason being is because if they start talking about it, I think, then they have to take, then there's spotlight on it, then there's studies on it, and then there's attention, because then they're going to have to explain why is it like that. And, and I think that's one of the reasons why, like, Dr. Curry gets attacked. You know what I mean? He speaks about it often when he's Oh, you have to leave the, the country. You know that, right? Oh, yeah, he's in, uh, I think he's yeah. in Scotland or something he, like that. Yeah, he's in Scotland yeah, he's or, or even, England or something. Yeah, he can't be in the country. They threatened to kill him a million he times. He got kids. They're trying to kill him and his family. I mean, yeah, he has to he stay has with it, the heat on campus. He talked about that. Like, he's campus. like, I keep a gun. He said, I stay with one. Don't get it messed up. He said, I stay with that hammer. <laughs> like, he was not playing. Yeah. And then he ended up picking up. Like, I can't do it no more. I got to get up out of here. So I, he, yeah. he's so brilliant because... He was talking about this for so long, and there were no, absolutely zero texts on the black male sexual abuse experience in slavery until the delectable Negro. 
And that kind of, yeah. I think, drove him to really like dig deep and pull out his best self in writing The Man Not. And then you had the other brother, Tom, the, other brother the, the, the white writer, Thomas, whatever his name is, who wrote that book, right? Now, the thing about it is this. The reason why, and I think you're right, you, you're onto something with what you're saying in regards to why it's not talked about. I'm going to add to that. If black male suffrage was to become a topic of discussion on a broader scale, it will really bring to light the deviance of white males the deviance of white females because black males were raped by white males and by white females. There are many mm-hmm. stories of white males looking for very well endowed black males to both have sex with and to have them have sex with them. There's many stories of white females forcing black males to have sex with them or threatening to get them killed by saying that they raped them or they touched them or they looked at them in a certain way. So they were forced to have Two sex movies. with these women. Two movies real quick. Two movies for the listeners, Drum and Mandingo. Both of those excellent in in depicting go exactly what you just said. Those two movies when I watched them, I was like, whoa. Because they they just they didn't they didn't hold anything back. I mean, Goodbye Uncle Tom is rough, but that's also, you know, good. Black female experience more than the black male experience as far as the sexual aspect. It doesn't deal with the black male. And they don't talk about black children. What a lot of no, people don't. don't know is that for usually from birth or as well as, as long as they could walk through, through their early 20s, most black children, black male, males and females never had bottoms on. So they might have a mm. shirt with no, they were either completely naked or just have a shirt with no bottoms. Right. And this right. fueled the pedophilia. Like, like they would actually be seeing black children's naked bodies in the field doing their jobs and these white men will rape them too because th- that was one of the reasons they were left with no clothes it was easy access so mm-hmm. we really if we were to explore what happened to black men it would bring the sickness of white psychopathology on a bigger stage it will also make people understand why the continent of africa is so anti-lgbtq p nonsense why Jamaicans right. are considered so-called the most homophobic people in, on the planet, which they're not homophobic. They experienced, they were the, the, one of the, the, the breaking grounds for buck breaking. So they saw some right. of the most heinous use of uh, sodomy in human history. So their aversion to it has to do with their intergenerational experience dating all the way back to slavery. And that is where that comes from. All of that will have to be dealt with. And then it, because black women have now, been psycho psychologically and psychosocially uh, engineered to partner with white females in with the whole feminist movement, black feminists, and also, which is what what uh, really fueled the anti-sexual agenda amongst black women t- starting in the sixties with all this free love and laying with white women and stuff. If they were to deal with the black male sexual experience during slavery and what that how that leads to what we're experiencing today, it w- it would actually supplant in attention the attention that's been given to the black woman. And she has to be continued to be used as a tool against the black male, those black women who are used in that capacity or better yet allow themselves to be used in that capacity. And when I say it would, it would then trump the black female experience that we're all used to hearing is because we've heard about it from day one. So it's almost like, in, in the minds of the public, it'll be like beating a dead horse. We already know. We've seen The Color Purple. We've seen all these movies. We've seen Goodbye Uncle Tom. We know what this is. 
now that they're hearing about mm. this stuff, they're going to be like, what the heck? A man is not supposed right. to be used in these and abused in these ways. That is not. But when you study their history, you understand why it happened that way. And it's so um, diabolical when you get the no. personal details of what actually transpired with some of these men. It is so diabolical. It would turn the way I think people, non-white people, see white people. It'll turn it on its ear, especially with all the LGBTQ. And now they're trying to add the pedophilia aspect to it with the P and all of that. But go ahead. What were you saying? No, they, I, I believe definitely the delectable Negro would change people's minds. And that's a tough read, by the way, as well, because I, I had to finish it. I, I had to stop it, by the way, in the middle of that. You know what I'm saying? Because I, I yeah. couldn't do it that, that, that smooth. And same thing with Harriet Washington's... Um, um, yeah, medical again, apartheid um, is, a, is a serious Medical read, apartheid. Yeah. It's yeah, a tough that's read, a killer too, read. I had to, yeah. I had to pause in the middle of that and everything, and I'm not done with it either. But I will say this is that there are images of black men in positive light around because, uh, you know, you spoke about this a little bit in, earlier on. And I think there are images of black men in positive light um, as in some Asian countries where we're seen as the epitome of masculinity, you know, and there are some countries that understand um, the black man's plight. So they look at the black man of America and go. That man is amazing. You know, I know my you know, father and stuff. You know what, oh, you ahead, understand I'm what I'm saying? No, no I, go I, right I totally ahead. Go right ahead. I totally get it because I I sometimes watch uh, black people in this a, a channel that deals with black people who move to Asia for a myriad of reasons. You watch that too? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And these brothers are like, I'm treated like a like a human being here. You know, and yet some of them will have the weird experiences because some of them have never seen a black person, have never seen woolly hair. So they're actually genuinely mm -hmm. interested. And then you also have those mm -hmm. who, like I said, they have access to all of the nigga, 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 bitch, 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 ho, ho, ho music that we listen to. Mm -hmm. And they think of us like, my nigga, you go to one of them countries, you might get that. Mm -hmm. Because our, our culture in the West has infected these other people around the world. One of the greatest mm -hmm. things that has fueled the criminal culture in Trinidad and Tobago was the access to BET, MTV, and the music that rap music that was coming out of America. And I saw it. I saw it firsthand when I went to Trinidad, and none of my cousins wanted to hear nothing but 50 Cent when he was at his, the top of his game. It was just 50 Cent was blazing out of every car. And I'm like, what happened to the Calypso? What happened to the Soka? What happened to, to even a little bit of reggae? What the heck is this? And I actually went there hoping to escape <laughs> all of that stuff. I was like, man, I can't wait to get back home and just, just kick back and, you know, just do things the way I'm used to it being done. And I'm like, Trinidad is like a mini America, yo. Like, what's this? I'm trying to escape America, and I'm finding it everywhere I turn. KFC was the biggest thing since hotcakes. I kid you not, everybody didn't want to eat, you know, anything traditional. Trinidad, my relatives was like, yo, we going to KFC. And the, uh, the major thing was that was real chicken. I'm like, wow, to taste real chicken is amazing because they don't play that mess in the islands as far as that type of stuff. It was like, wow, this is what chicken tastes like. It, it's a, it, it was just like a wild experience to see all my cousins going insane for all the things that I was running from in America. It was just wild. So I would just say that um, when you go to, like, the people who go to Asia, the vast majority of them are like, listen, I get treated like a, like, a, like a human being. These people are cool, they're helpful. You know, you might have to get used to some of the different cultural expressions in Japan or um, in, in South Korea 
um, and some of the other places that these people move to and travel to. But pretty much they have great experiences. The thing is that black people have been also, just like the sister talked about um, in the video who lost her son, talking about being cultivated against swimming. Black people are cultivated against travel. And I tell, because the vast majority of ignorance that I hear come out of the mouth of American Africans are people who have never left the block. They know nothing but maybe a 10-mile, 10-square block radius around their block or their project, and that's all they know. I know people in New York who have never left their borough. They're from the Bronx. They don't go to Manhattan. They don't go to Brooklyn. They don't go nowhere. They in Brooklyn. They ain't never been anywhere but Brooklyn. And that is where you get those real, like, it's like the blind leading the blind. It's like everybody just has their own ideas, and then it's confirmation bias. The stupidity just passes from person to person because nobody's experienced anything to come back and say it's not what you think it is. And I remember how many how many rappers that I grew up with and been around who used to say, like, just traveling exploded their membrane and their, their, their brains just exploded because they were like, wow, I didn't realize that the world was so big and that, you know, all these other people around the world who look up to me like like they live this way and it's so different and in a lot of ways better than where I'm coming from. We're taught to think America is the grandest of everything. We're one of the worst countries in education, one of the worst countries in medicine, one of the worst countries as far as military is concerned. A lot of people think America got the greatest military. It's not true anymore. It used to be true. It's not true anymore. America's bad at everything. The only thing they're good at is white supremacy and killing black people in this country. That, those are the two things they have perfected is, is anti-blackness and the propagation of that crap globally and practicing racism within their own country. So and, I, I say that to ahead. say, pardon, I, I say that to say that um, energy-wise, I'm looking at, you know, the, you know, as I'm older now, that one of the things that's important that I've I've noted I had to really take into account is really really focusing on not beating other black people up as much. Mm-hmm. You know I'm mm-hmm. still I'm still gonna do it because I've been programmed to do that. Um, so I've been trying my best to be very patient with those that are not um, less confused um, yeah. and also being way more patient with myself. Like considering Absolutely. the error. Considering the era that we all grew up in, I mean, and this is Jenna too, we grew up in that era where we were not supposed to, we're not supposed to be alive. We're technically not supposed to be alive. They poisoned the streets during our era. They took all the crafts and all the trades out of the high schools and they just flooded the streets with drugs. And we technically, man, when you think about it, we really survived a lot. And I think I've, I have been more and more realizing that as I've gotten older and I'm being more patient with myself. But not only that, I'm trying to make sure I give my energy and my time a very close look because um, I sometimes realize I'm wasting my energy on time on things and on people that I just don't need to. And I think that's where one of the things we could start bit by bit just working on stuff is just being careful with our energy and our time because you don't see it it's not like money coming out of your pocket so you don't think that much of it that's exactly and that's the thing that i'm realizing is like i gotta look at it way more way more important than anything else because people depend on me as i depend on them 
and I need to make sure that I have the energy for them when they're around, and I need to make sure I have the time. And if I don't, I need to make the time, you know what I'm saying, for them. So it's, it's a very important thing that I've been looking at um, since October, I've been realizing this. I've been putting my mind to that and um, just trying to emphasize it more for the so-called New Year. Man, that's a that's a, a, a heavy, heavy set of things that you just expressed. And it's funny because my son and I were talking about this recently, a few weeks ago. There was a song I wrote back when I was, I think, maybe 1920. And... In the song, I talk about not not making it past 24, and I really didn't think I would make it past 24. So now I'm 46, and I told him, I said, it's it's, it's a very um, sobering thing. Like you said, when I look back on those times, it's like it's a sobering thing to still be here. And um, the, the, the interesting part about it is when you talk about patience, that's why we say the prayer. That's why we adopted that prayer from Gus. Um, is because I think that's the most important thing. And I think every black person, I don't care what background you come from, we all have an issue with uh, being patient with other black people and, and not being aggressive with them if, they're, if, they're, if they happen to be aggressive with us. That was something I had a serious problem with, especially when I was young. I was just, I was a hothead. But, I, I mean, I didn't solely focus my negative energy on black people. I, white people got a lot of it, too. And a couple of Latinos got it as well. But I was just holistically a, a very prone to violence kind of a person. And, or better yet, it didn't take much to, to set me off. And I didn't need much coaxing to, 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 like, get physical with anyone. And the biggest thing for me, now that I'm older, like, I have great control of my temper now compared to when I was younger. But I do have those moments when I have to actually, like, take a step out of myself. And if, if something happens that that's agitating to me, I have to take a step out of myself and just say, you know what? It's not worth it. Like you said, it's not worth your time or your energy. And the thing is that we don't realize that time goes by very, very quickly. And like I said before, time is actually the fifth dimension. And time is tied intimately to memory. That's what makes it important. Otherwise, there's no point of even being able to look back and say, remember when? Time makes it possible for you to create history based on what is happening in real time and space. And that's how you're tracking your existence, the existence of the universe, the existence of the planets, all of these things are tracked by using time. So time is not actually a human invention. It was always there. We had to discover that it existed. And then what our ancestors did was they created different mediums of measuring time. And we started centering our lives around different seasons and the propagation of plants and agriculture and those sorts of things to be eventually developed to the so-called modern beings that we are now. But time itself has always existed because it's intimately tied to memory. And if you, when you understand that time is something that you, you never get back, then it becomes important. But the thing is, it all depends on what age you are when you come to that realization. Most people just tend to live more than half of their lives before that dawns on them. Um, some people are lucky enough to pick up on that when they're very young. 
not many tend to most times youth you know like my father used to say youth the youth is wasted on the young um some people get it in their late 20s maybe early 30s but once you understand it then you try to do as much as you can to not waste your time i remember hearing dr ben and dr claude speak about minister malcolm and how he would be up sometimes most times over 20 hours a day only getting about four hours of sleep would be up before the rooster would crow and start his day all over again because his time was that precious tupac you would hear about him living in the studio dropping five to seven songs a day because he knew he didn't have time so that is time is <laughs> so precious you, you you have to look at those some of those people who made their time important. And then you start to say, okay, now I, I think I get it now. I see it. And now that I know it, what am I going to do about it? So if that that's the biggest part to me. of The biggest aspect of black self-respect is respecting your own time, which will force you to respect the time of everybody else. Because it's limited. It's the most precious entity we have after breathing. It's time. Mm. So, yeah, we have to take that serious. Like, it's, it's, it's the most serious thing you have. You'll never get it back. And and um, if we can start teaching our children that, maybe they would do even more or seek to accomplish even more if they understood who they were, ancestors were, how great they were the things that they could aspire to achieve based on what they know that the greatness of their past gave them, mm-hmm. it'll push them. And then if you oh, help them understand the importance of time, then huh? they'll put those two together early and start making those moves in the right direction. Is somebody speaking? Oh, is somebody speaking? Oh, peace. My, my fault. My fault. Oh, no problem. No problem. Yeah. So uh, they, they, um, Oh, go ahead. No, go no, go right ahead. I apologize, man. I was going to ask you about uh, something else. I finished your talk. Go ahead. No, it's no problem. You can go ahead. What are you going to? No, um, in 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 balancing out time and and really um, really trying to figure out because we all have important people in our lives and important things we want to do. One of the things that I struggle with, I'm I'm not sure if uh, I'm pretty sure other people could relate is just balancing that time out between the things you want to accomplish and the time with your loved ones. And that's mm-hmm. the, the the trickiest part for me um, because, I, you know, especially when you have children, every you know, and, and both of you know what I'm saying, like you want to accomplish things, but then at the same time, you don't want to be away from your children too much or your, or, or your loved ones because um, that time you can't get back with them. You know, you, that era or that, that stage will pass, you know, and um, that's, that's been a, a very big uh, thought for me as, as far as progressing and doing certain things that I need to do. Yeah, the thing is, it's just prioritizing your life around what's important. The, 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 we, those of us who work nine to five, the nine to five tends to take over. And once it takes over, everything else becomes in the side. Whereas the nine to five is important, but after you're done with the nine to five, what are you doing with your time? And that's where 
dedicating that time to family and to your loved ones, that's where, where that comes into play. It's just how you prioritize your time and the people that matter to you and the situations that matter to you. And for some people, that's hard, um, depending on their family experience and life experience. That can be hard for some people. But for the average person, whoever's important or whatever's important is what you're going to make time for. You make time for what you care about. That's my opinion. That's what I've seen just to be the truth of everything is that. Um, so once you, once you have family and loved ones that you know you care about and you want to spend time with, then you're going to make that time regardless, especially if, you know, in the times in which you don't have to work for somebody else. And that, that, that's just, I think should be everybody's focus more than anything else is the fact that, um, what, what do you hold in, in most esteem? What's most important to you? And then you start working your life around those things and pretty much if you just take stock of your life everybody could do that right now just pretty much look at your life and see see what you do with your time when your time is not taken it's not you know already accounted for and that'll let you know what's important and then if those things that you find is occupying your time when your time is not already spoken for and you don't like what those things are and you want them to be other things then you can start to work towards replacing the things you don't want to do anymore with, or the pe- people that you don't want to be around with the people that you want to be around. Well, first, it's just like Understood. being a, a drug addict. You have to acknowledge that you have a problem first. So you have to just look at your life. And some people might look over their lives and see everything cool. The people that they have around is who they want around. And the people they make time for are exactly the people you're supposed to. And then for other people, it'll be a little different. And then, like I said, that's a start. You know what I mean? Yeah, so it's, it's, understood. It's understood. Man, that was great. Thank you, brother. Um, did you have anything to add to that or no? No, I think it's best if I don't say nothing after that. <laughs> okay, okay. Now, you remember that clip you played with the people talking about where you're from? Yeah, yeah. I, I thought that that was quite important. It's funny because because I speak like this, most people, would, when they ask me where I'm from and I say Brooklyn, they just, they're cool with that. That's enough. Now, if people, go ahead. That's enough for them. Yeah, that's enough for them. But if, I, if I'm talking to my mom or another relative or something and I start speaking with, with my Trinidadian Creole, as they call it, most people are taken aback because they only, only know me speaking like this. And they'll say, where are you from? If they're not familiar with the islands, and then I'll tell them, and they'll be shocked. Like, I used to have real weird experiences, especially with American Africans, and specifically black female American Africans. There were a few jobs I worked in where I would, you know, my mom would call me for something important or just to ask me a question or something, and I would answer the phone. So I would literally be on my lunch break talking to them like this, and the moment the phone rings, I'm off and running. And for those people who had never seen me do that, they would just stand there looking at me in this weird amazement. So then I get off the phone with my mom and I go back to talking like this. And they're like, man, I really like that. And it, to me, the impression I got was that in their mind, there was something different about me or quote unquote special about me because of that. And it was almost like they felt, and it, this is, 
to me, this kind of lets help me to un- better understand the black American condition because it was assumed that for some reason, not being from America or not having roots in America somehow made me better. And this was coming to me from black American females. And some of them thought that it was sexy. So they would be like, yo, talk like that again. And I would just, you know, I wouldn't really oblige them. I would just laugh and be like, nah, you know, it's all good. And I I would actually tell them about themselves. Cause I'm like, yo, you have such a rich, you have the richest history. Right. So there's nothing for you to look at. And I used to always tell them, look, we come from the same experience. The difference is the slave ship just stopped a little earlier from, from my relatives and stopped a little later for your relatives. That's what I used to tell them. And not only that, but the majority of black slaves that were bought, excuse me, the majority of slaves that were bought to the mainland America came from the islands. You can check the shipping logs. There's very few ships that came directly from Africa to Virginia or anywhere on the East Coast. The overwhelming majority of those slaves who who landed in America, the United States of America, came from being island hopped in the Caribbean first. And if they were what they call recalcitrant slaves, meaning slaves they couldn't break, they would send them back to the islands to be broken. And if they survived being broken, they would send them back to the plantation plantation that they were kicked off of for raising hell and starting trouble. And those are the types of discussions I would have when those sorts of things would arise because we just, we're people, we're the same people. And me speaking the way I speak just has to do with my background. The same way a Southern black American speaks how they speak, because that, that's, that accent is the American African accent so pretty much Africans trying to speak English, that was the accent that developed, and then white people adopted that accent. That's where the white Southern accent came from. It came from actually they're mimicking the slaves that were trying to speak like them. So, you know, it's, it's just interesting. I think when people ask you where you're from and then they, they, they'll tell you something like, I know you're different, it's usually for people who, that I've seen in my experience, what I've seen it's people who look quote unquote exotic or they quote unquote look mixed in some fashion. They'll, and I don't know if you noticed in the video, Jenna, that the people who they were talking to were people who looked either like they were from someplace else, whether Middle Eastern or Pakistani or whatever the case may be. Yeah. And then some of them actually looked like they were mixed, like black and something else. So the question was being asked not only because they had a British accent, but the fact that they, they actually looked like, wait a minute. You're not a white British person. And the assumption is British people are all British people are white. That's the assumption right there based on, based on what they were saying in the video. So that's, that can be uncomfortable, especially if you're in, in a country ruled by racist white supremacists and they create an environment that's anti-immigrant. Well, you know, and go ahead. Yeah, I get, I get what you're saying, but that's, that's just, uh, from the mixture a lot a lot of them right a lot of them were uh immigrants as well right. as That's what you I know saying. first generation and mm-hmm. so it was a, a a little bit of different context i guess they had a, a woman from india the country india i think right was the one dude like Cuban and and some and Asian or something yeah, like that? He was, yeah, I think so. You absolutely there. You so remember it was a good. controlled. Yeah, I believe one a, of them was. It was a controlled uh, little experiment they had, 
But we get this just within our culture, like you were just stating from the you made the example about the uh the southern slang, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, northerners have that as well, as well as east coast and west coast. We yeah. The bad thing about it is a lot of times, well, it's been changing. That's something that y'all was talking about earlier. Uh, Cujo said a lot of us survived a time when when everybody should have been dead. A lot of us felt that way. So, But it's changing as the, uh, the generation. Yep. People are more, it's more of a curiosity now. It's, I, although I understood what they were saying, but just me in general, what I've experienced from growing up through that time that Cujo was talking about up to now, seeing these people move around, a lot of the younger people are more uh, curious, more so than territorial when we was coming up. Right. I agree. And I think, um, I think, the difference is the streets are dangerous, but in a different way than it was for us coming yes. up. It's, it, it's different in a different, it's dangerous in a different capacity. I think most black, most uh, young black people, the danger is the cultural stuff. Like, like I was saying, listening to rap about drugs, that makes them curious. And then they want to try it because their favorite rapper is talking about doing all these exotic drugs. Yeah. So I think, I think that that's the issue now more than the streets proper, like the way we experienced it, where, where you know, pretty much everybody was hustling. Everybody around you was selling drugs and busting guns and doing all kinds of stuff. And that's still happening, but I think the bigger issue is, like, the drug use thing, the, the sipping on lean and all of that type of stuff, I think, is the bigger, and the, the the bigger issue. For, and the, and the, the technology. I'm sorry, go ahead. I say you can't forget the, the kidnapping and the technology is part of that. That's a that's a yeah. real threat that's going around as well. People, by way of technology, being talked to, lured to some space and gone. Well, what, what, do you, what do you guys think about the aspect of um, because our generation migrated into technology. This general and this generation is they they're born into it. And the, the reality of the situation is we're still figuring out what to do with this technology. We're still figuring out what effects it has on us bit by bit as we've migrated into it. And here we are trying to guide children and younger ones Man. through it. I think the technology is like cigarettes. When cigarettes first came out, everybody was doing it. They had no health information on it. No, nobody, nobody understood the effects of the different chemicals they were adding to cigarettes to make it more addictive. So it was like a fresh, a new, a new frontier. And they were able to make mm-hmm. billions and billions of dollars off of people being enamored with the act of smoking, getting addicted to the nicotine. Now, decades and decades later, all of this destruction of life and lung cancer and addiction and all of this stuff, they're, now they're pretty much trying to dismantle the entire industry. I think it's the same thing with the technology. They're just, it's too early for, the, for them to come to consensuses, even though the consensus is already there. Matter of fact, we're just at the stage where they un- fully understand what the, the addictive aspect is because they've purposely created the, the technology to be addictive. But because they make so much money at it, it is the new crack. It has taken mm-hmm. over as it's not the crack era anymore. Like they, I remember I was watching something 
might have been 60 Minutes, where they were talking about these children that you were talking about that were born into this technology. They're calling them, and they're after uh, Generation Y and after uh, the 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 other whatever. They call them the app generation because they're born mm. into it. And then they're immediately becoming addicted to the technology. I remember seeing the three-year-old uh, white baby on the train with his mother, and the mother was on her cell phone, and the baby started acting up on the train. So she takes a tablet out. She finds some sort of uh, either a video game or some sort of cartoon, and she gives the baby the, the tablet. And the child is just, and he knows how to move. He's doing everything. He knows how to change screens and tap on stuff. And he knows everything about this. And he's fully content. She's not paying him any attention. She's in her phone. So it's the babysitter now. So they're born into addiction. They don't even know what it's like not to be addicted to technology. Man. And when she tried to take mm-hmm. it away from, from the child so that, so that you know, she could get off the train, because I'm pretty sure she didn't want him potentially dropping it or it falling between the train and the um, platform when she got off the train, the child went postal. The child completely snapped in public. And she's just yeah. thinking, let me hurry up and get into a secure space so I could give him back this tablet so he could shut the hell up. That was, you could see it on her face. Like that was her regular thing of, you know, way of doing things. And that's why now they're saying that we can't even call ourselves homo sapiens sapien anymore. We're cyborgs. When we think of cyborgs, mm-hmm. we think of Terminator. We think of robots with real human skin and autonomous robots and stuff. The reality is, Anything that is attached to a technological item and they cannot do, live their lives without it is a cyborg. And we cannot live without our phones. You know how many millions of Americans are addicted to their phone, but they have to use their phone on their job? For my job, I had to download an app that allows me to operate the VPN for my company to access the, the different uh, apps that I need to actually do my job every day. So even if I had an addictive mm-hmm. issue with the technology and I'm trying to wean myself off of it, my nine to five is <laughs> using the same stuff <laughs> I'm running from. I can't escape it's it. Pulling your you child's in. going to school and they're giving your child a free tablet or a free, um, a free uh, com- laptop. <laughs> so they're addicting your child right there. And they're not even telling you about the radiation coming off those machines. Well, so they they're can't, they can't answer ovaries. the questions. I just yeah, they're to frying add your daughter's ovaries. They're frying your son's testicles because these children are sitting them on their lap, laptop, thus the term laptop, and their ovaries and their testicles are being fried. And no one's mm-hmm. telling their parents. And on top of that, they're also addicted. And on top of that, there's stories of uh, sick people who work in the schools uh, hacking into these computers that these children and tablets that these children bring home and commandeering their microphones and commandeering their cameras. That happened in New Jersey about two, three years ago. There was a, a school in North Jersey who gave at, um, uh, tablets and, and laptops to their students like they normally do, and there was a, 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 an adult who worked in the school who was hacking into their, their laptop, and most of those child, children had no concept of putting a piece of tape over their, the camera on their laptop or their, app, on, on, or their um, uh, tablet. So this guy was able to turn on the microphone, turn on the, the camera, and wherever in the in the room that camera was facing, they were able to see everything. So if the child had the computer open on their desk and they had just come out the shower and was changing their clothes, he was able to see it. Whatever they were talking about, if your child might have been, you know, doing something that you like masturbating, 
they would have caught that too because they commented like this this was on the news in the jersey a couple years ago so this is happening here and most parents don't get it they don't understand Mm -hmm. so we just played the clip a, a couple weeks ago of the um the 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 the, what they call it they call it sharenting with a bunch of young children like the age of 10 to like 13 whose parents are addicted to posting photographs and every little thing that their child does they said for the first time in human history you're going to have children who entire whose entire lives from birth out the vagina all the way through adulthood is going to be completely documented on the internet not only that they said by the year 2030 um, I think it was like 80 or 85% of the identity theft is going to come from sharing from parents putting out information about their children on the internet, people taking that information and being able to steal these children's identity. And in the video we played, mm-hmm. those little children were upset with their parents and were co- conversing with their parents about like them not putting so much information or any information about them on the internet. Like these children were actually scared for their own safety. And the parents were literally addicted, like, yo, I can't stop doing it. I need to post pictures. If I don't, I'm going to lose my mind. Like, I'm like, are you serious? You have a 10-year-old who's more mature than her 30-something-year-old mom. Well, she born in it. One of the things. Go ahead, Kujo. I, I was going to mention a, a, a documentary you guys might want to check out. It's on Netflix. Um, it's called The Great Hack. And um, it deals with that whole scandal with Cambridge of Analytica and the fact that our data, and this is the real big crux of things that I think they don't talk about and they're not going to publicize. I have too many um, uh, shows or interviews about with with people that know this is that our data is not ours. So once it goes out on the Internet that you watch... um, uh, a documentary or you watch a movie X amount of times a week and that's what you do, they'll set up a, obviously an algorithm will be programmed to function and catch on to that and will keep sending you different documentaries or ads, sending you different advertisements about these movies that you'll per se want to go see. But the thing is, if you go ask Google and say, can I get a map or a full rundown of all the data that you get from me? They're not they're by law, they have the right to hold on to that data. Same thing with Amazon, same thing with all the major companies. You don't have any rights to your own personal data. And that's one of the things in this uh, documentary, The Great Hack. I think it's very important for people to understand because if they're telling you that they don't, you don't have any rights to the data, but they're taking the data and using it and manipulating it, and flipping it back and forth to you to, to, to psychoanalyze you to see what they can have you purchase or have you do with your free time, I mean, you can't even make this up. Like, that's one of the big things about this generation that, that's really tough is that from birth, their data is and their life and privacy is not their own. It's you not know, and their it's, own. It's funny you say that because this is the first, that's what I mean when I say, like, this whole thing with this technology is uncharted territory. This is the first time in human history that human beings even had to worry about that data. I always say, like, back in the days, if the if the, the FBI wanted to, you know, investigate you, they had to get a subpoena to pick through your garbage and, and see what you ate last night and what was on the receipts you threw away or what little notes you put in the trash that they could, you know, commandeer and use against you in the court of law. They would have to get a, a subpoena, I mean, a, um, a warrant 
to sneak in your house when you leave to go to work and, you know, go through your personal effects when you're not home and all that type of stuff. Now we just give it away for free on the Internet. And the crazy part about that is uh, is the fact that, like you said, this is the first time that data is being bought and sold in this in this manner because technology, there's no regulations on technology for any of this stuff. So as a result, we don't even realize the value of it. Because I did see a documentary. I don't even know. It might have been either a piece of the great hack or something, but they were talking about there, there were apps that people can use in or, order to get control of their data and not only get control of their data, but also get paid for how it's being wow. used. So these, wow. this is a whole new industry that's starting, that's beginning to grow off of this data thing. Remember the whole VPN? Remember, there was no such thing as a VPN. Once people started realizing that, that, that their information was, was compromised as far as people being able to see what they're doing all the time, they wanted protection from that. And in wanting that protection, VPNs became a thing. Now it's a whole industry about protecting yourself on the Internet and all of that stuff. But the truth is that that was something new because the necessity was there. So now this problem with the data thing is creating a necessity for people getting a handle on their data, controlling it and how it's being used. And the same thing with the genetics. Because your genetic data is being used in the same way as your viewing preferences and your search preferences on Google. They're now even able to tailor make things based on your genetic predispositions. They're, they're, they'll put those in the algorithms, too. That'll make you interested in buying stuff based on your genetic predisposition. This is all new stuff that never existed in human mm. history now. Mm. So you're touching on something really important that people should be looking looking into because it's 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 um <laughs> like people and you have to remember like your 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 DNA is your is your book of life it is who you are broken down to its most minute compound your genetic amino the the um uh the protein that make up the base characteristics of who you are as a multicellular organism and these people have access to it especially like the only two, there's only two genetic testing facilities that do not sell the information of the genes of the people who they test. And that is um, MyHeritage.com and AfricanAncestry.com. They do not sell your information to anyone for any reason. They're never, never going to catch a serial killer based on the fact <laughs> that the, it, law enforcement got access to your genes from them. That's anything, anything outside of those two. They're selling your data. Mm. Facts. So, so, so that it's like it's really, really serious, and it's important because they know they know everything about you. Now, if somebody wants to kill you, or they want to, you know, maybe because the CIA has different chemicals they can mix that can cause you to have a heart attack, things like that. Now, now, if they find out that you're genetically predisposed to heart disease, that makes their job easier. If they if they figure out a chemical way of turning on certain genes and you go eat in a restaurant and they put some special powder in your food that'll make those genes activate and all of a sudden you have prostate cancer that's highly aggressive and all of a sudden out of nowhere they don't know where it came from but it's there and in no time flat you dead. Like these are the sorts of things that, that have been like Germany, Israel, America, they've been doing this stuff for decades trying to figure out gen ways of genetically attacking certain racial groups. Israel and them, they've been doing it. America's been doing it since like the, what, 40s and 50s. Germany, same thing. 
So, I mean, this is, this is, this is new frontier and it's uncharted because there's no regulations on any of this stuff. So we're not going to really like, like generations from now is like our great grandchildren will probably start to see the laws come into play to tighten up on all this stuff. that's just, you know, just, just open season on everybody's information. This is uh, entire industries are going to be created off of what's happening now because it's all unregulated. And remember with regulation comes tight control. Remember when they started uh, regulating the Google experience, that's when all these algorithms came and that's when they started. What? I, wonder, I wonder what we could find out if we just look at what people search for. We just get aggregates of all of that information. You have to remember that that's what makes time again, time and memory so important. When you, when you work, right, and you do, let's say you're an accountant and you're doing uh, taxes for, for a company over 10 years, if you go through all of those tax returns for those 10 years, you'll be able to gather a great amount of information about how successful a company is over time. Just like if you're doing a job every day, and you have to sit with your with your uh, supervisor every six months. They have you know a uh, 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 an assessment meeting where they just look at your work and how you've been doing and whatnot. When they go through those six months, they're looking at your productivity over an extended period of time. It gives them a great picture of how pro- productive you are. If you're a time waster, if if, if and compared to other people, is the work that you're doing comparable? Are you outperforming them? When you get that information, like when you come to the job, right? Let's say, let's say uh, you 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 do customer service and you answer phones for a company, and all of a sudden, over time, you have a coworker who's able to bang out seventy to a hundred calls per day, and every time they go through your records, you're only banging out thirty a day, and then you have all those, a bunch of other people working around you. They're doing maybe you know forty, fifty. 35, but you got this one person who's banging out 70 to 100 calls a day. All of a sudden, you come in one day and they tell you everybody got to make 70 to 100 calls per day. Why did that change? Because they're looking at your productivity over time. And it gives them insight into who you are and whether or not they're getting maximum output from you. And when they see that one person can, can make that 70 to 100, they're like, if they could do it, all of these people could do it. That these are the that that's why time and history and memory are intertwined. Time is not a mutually exclusive thing from memory. Without time, memory is useless. The whole process of remembering is to go back and get something and put it together. Remember. Mm-hmm. Something that's split apart, you're putting it back together, you're remembering it. And time makes that possible. Memory doesn't exist without time. Time will exist whether memory doesn't or not. Because it's there. It is a thing. Hey, Ross. Yes, sir. Man, that was that was a nice little, little metaphysical little journey there. Hey, but you got to... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, you, know, you gotta you gotta outtake that man. You gotta cut that and chop it up or something. You gotta do something. <laughs> you gonna have to go on and uh, give us the prayer and take us on up out of here, man. 
No problem. Um, thanks to everybody. Uh, we greatly appreciate each and every one of you. We thank you all for spending your Tuesday, well, Tuesday, geez, Friday evening with us. We hope and pray that each and every one of you have a great weekend. Um, stay safe. Stay out of the hands of those slave catchers. Do everything you can to minimize contact, to minimize conflict where, when that is a necessity. Um, do your best to practice black self-respect everywhere that you are. And I do want to say, it's up to, to the parents. Like, I got to big up Scotty. Scotty went into the military, fought in Iraq, and when he came back, and his family is an intergenerational military family going back to, like, the early wars in American history. He's traced his roots back. And um, he, when he, he understood the role that he played in propagating white supremacy via his military activity, he stopped. And not only that, he stopped his two daughters, I believe it's two, I know one for sure, um, from actually going in the military and explain to them, like, no, you're not helping the enemy. And they, they came to understand it, and they didn't go into the military to serve their enemy, hurting other non-white people. So it's up to the parents in the know to inform their children of the history of how military, uh, black military servants are mistreated, abused, and murdered after giving their lives for this country. They need to be taught about the fact that when they're doing these things, they're operating in service of white supremacy, and they will think twice or maybe not do it. Um, some people's financial situation might say, i, I got to do it. So if that's the case, we, we should not judge them. We should pray for their safety. Because if they would, if they could, they wouldn't be there. They're forced to be there for a reason outside of their control. So these are all things we have to take into account. My dad, when he first got to this country, he wanted to join the military. He said that was one of the main things. He loved the uniform. He thought, he thought America was the greatest country, all this stuff. And it was Kwame Ture who broke it down to him. And he was like, uh-uh, <laughs> you know. And, and thankfully, um, he had actually attempted to join the military, but because he had had a heel spur, they wouldn't take him. But, you know, when he met Kwame Ture, Kwame Ture helped to raise his consciousness to understand why he was, should never want to join the military. And when I was coming up, he made sure to tell me that. Like, you're not joining the military for this country when you could die just being black male on the streets of America. They didn't, you're not treating us right as black people, so you're not going to fight for these people. He said if America was treating us right and, and, and practicing its ideals, you know, the same way with black people that it does with white people, then no problem. You could serve this country. And if it's, if it's doing something to help another nation, fine. But outside of that context, there's no need to join the military. So it's up to the parents to be able to do that for their children. So I did want to say that and just big up Scotty um, for the work that he's done just talking about this, but also within his own family. He started with his own family first by letting them understand what the truth was and steering them away from making the same mistakes that he made when he was young. So, and we, and we still thank him for his service. <laughs> and, you know, regardless, we still thank him for his service. But he understood and he made those changes. So that's the difference between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge is just the acquisition of information. Wisdom is the application of the information that you have acquired. So with that, thank you all for spending your Friday evening with us. Have a safe weekend. Stay out of the hands of those slave catchers. If you do choose to imbibe intoxicating uh, items, stay where you are indoors until you're sober and do not hit the street in a state of, uh, of uh, inebriation. Don't give them a reason to stop you for any reason for being intoxicated whatsoever. One of the first things you can do if you're driving a vehicle to protect yourself is to wear your seatbelt. So please do that. 
And with that, we're going to get ready to say the prayer and close out. Um, Creator, we ask that you help us to remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us to remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, especially each and every time that we are in contact with another black person. Help us to see ourselves in one another and each other. Let's end the system of white supremacy, ASAP, and replace it with a system of justice. Let's also destroy the prison industrial complex and stop human trafficking. Please. I just saw a tragic story of a sister who was set up by a black male and was killed recently, so we have to stop this. Ah, Let's get ready to close out. I am in the love of the all, and all love is in me. I am a part of the all, and the all is a part of me. I am one with the all, and the all is one with me. I can succeed as a part of the all and fail as an individual. I can be all that I wish in the all, as long as my wish is to stay in the all. I am never alone. The all is, I am. The all can, I can. The all does, I do. Once again, thank you all for spending your Friday evening with us. Stay safe and have a great weekend. We'll see you again next week. Creator willing. And one love, peace and love. Good night, uhu, and Ubuntu to each and every one of you. Peace. Peace, peace.